Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host, and I am sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how the hell are you? I'm doing good. Doing uh, good. Are, are, are you really, though? Are, are you a little addled? Mm-hmm. Are you a little shaken tonight? Do you feel a little off your bearings for any reason whatsoever? Like maybe maybe and to do a, a completely different podcast and uh, yeah. and now you're doing something entirely different at the very last moment. And maybe maybe you feel a little out of sorts as a result. It's weird how accurate uh, your assessment of me is. Like, <laughs> it's like you're in my brain. I don't know how. It, well, you know, I'm kind of feeling it, too, and we can explain that to uh, to our listeners here in just a moment. But before we do that, we're going to have to introduce our very first guest ever to Hammer Pub. Folks, put your hands together for Daniel Epler, the host of Cobwebs, a gothic cinema podcast, which is one of my favorite current podcasts out there i actually got to be a guest about a well what was it like a month month and a half ago two months ago you know what time has no meaning coming out of 2020 i can't even remember when i was a guest i just know that i had a blast so anyway all that said daniel thank you very much for being on the show and thank you for agreeing to be on the show this particular episode at literally the last minute Oh, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. I've been a big Hammer Pub fan for a while. So uh, this is this is kind of an honor, actually. I'm, I'm happy to be sitting in the pub. It looks nice in here. <laughs> Hammer Pubs always do. You, oh, you, yeah. you got a little set decoration. Just a lot of, lot of, lot of value there. Um, no, nice, okay. uh, red and green gel lights on the side and stuff like that. Classy. It's classy. <laughs> uh, uh, to explain to listeners what is going on here and why uh, Paul and I seem to be uh, maybe a tad nervous is because usually we want to bring you the very best possible podcast experience ever. And to do that, we we sometimes we like to prep a little bit before we uh, we, we do a talk. You know, maybe we'll watch the movie. We'll make notes. We'll do a little research and uh, we'll put a good deal of effort into it. And then uh, generally I'll piss all of that away about halfway through the episode because I'm drunk and I usually like to uh, take down other avenues and digress quite a bit. And so as a result, it doesn't really wind up being the commentary that we planned ever, but still the effort is there and we put it in. Tonight is going to be a little different because, uh, well, tonight, this very moment, we were meant to be recording the annual top 10 episode. Uh, Folks, if you follow us on Twitter, you know that I've been uh, kind of teasing that for a while now, maybe about the last three weeks. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten around to recording it yet. Uh, It keeps falling through. But yeah, it's going to be myself and Matt Feeney, Scott Foy, and Paul. Unfortunately, at the very last minute this evening, it fell through yet again. Uh, We are going to record that episode. At some point, hell or high water, we are going to get it made and we are going to get it to you. I just don't know when. But uh, it's been too long since we recorded. It's been too long since we put up an episode. So I thought, you know what? Damn it, Paul. Let's not... uh, Let's not just waste the evening. Let's go ahead and do an episode. Have we prepped for this one? No. But how deep were we going to dive on uh, Hammer's remake of The Old Dark House anyway, would you say? Well, look, I know listeners have come to expect a certain level of quality from our commentaries. Um, I mean, it's pretty clear that we do, I would say, exorbitant research um, to make sure that every second of our commentary tracks are solely focused on the film. It's, you know, it's history, it's context. Uh, um, So this, this night we might just, you know, we might go a little bit in a different direction. We might go a bit off the rails, which again, might be shocking 
for some. Eh. But uh, you know, I think I think uh, listeners might might get some enjoyment out of that, and I think that might be in line with the type of movie we're going to be talking about tonight. You know, it'll be an off the rails talk for an off the rails film. I think that's exactly. uh, it's appropriate. Yeah. So, uh, but I tell you what, you know what? As with every Hammer Pub, before we dive into the movie proper, we usually have a quick chat about the movies we've been watching recently. Funny thing, all of the movies I've been watching recently are movies that I thought might have a chance uh, <laughs> landing on my top ten. And so as a result, the bulk of the movies that I actually would have discussed tonight uh, are going to have to wait. But I'll figure out something. Uh, but I'll tell you what, before we do that, let me go ahead and throw it over to Daniel. Daniel, pick maybe one or two, or if you can, three movies you might have seen recently that you haven't discussed that you like to tell listeners about. What have you seen recently? What's been cool? You know, it's really weird that I came on here because I've actually seen two movies recently that I really liked that I watched specifically because of Paul Farrell's recommendations. So Uh-oh. this this is cool. I can tell Paul uh, directly what I thought of these movies. All right, all right. Uh, so the first one is a 2020 release, which I, I did not see a lot of. I, my, my head's been really down in old movies lately, but I did watch uh, Love and Monsters from 2020, okay. uh, which is a new basically – kind of a teen movie kind of a romance a post-apocalyptic road movie it's you know i like genre hybrids and this is definitely a genre hybrid kind of a horror kind of an adventure there's a lot of cool stuff going on and uh it's starring dylan o'brien from the maze runner movies i believe he was also in teen wolf but this movie is just delightful i mean i don't know know what other word to use it's so much fun i thought the romance hit really really well uh his relationship with a dog is also like a great movie dog relationship and um it was a movie that was really great to send off 2020 because it's a movie about really difficult circumstances uh very difficult life but making the best of things and looking on the bright side and and getting through it the best you can. And um, I know that might sound overly schmaltzy, but it it really worked for me. I thought this was a really sweet movie and I don't know that I would have watched it uh, if Paul wasn't talking about it so positively on Twitter. So, so thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, You know, that's, that's great. I mean, yeah, I I totally agree. Uh, It, it really caught me off guard. Um, you know, I Brian Duffield is sort of the hero of 2020 for me, having written Underwater, uh, Love and Monsters, and of course Spontaneous. Um, kind of brought in three of my favorite sort of film experiences all year. But yeah, I just think that uh, Love and Monsters is is a blast. It's it's a feel good monster movie um while at the same time delivering a lot of the sort of tension and scares that you would sort of come to expect out of an action adventure movie like that um i thought the characters were great i thought it sort of subverted some of my expectations here and there um some great effects and uh interesting world building just just a a wonderful movie that i wish had gotten the chance to be a big blockbuster because i think it could have done it uh, with the right advertising campaign and were it not in a situation where the whole world was shut down. Um, so I'm really hopeful that it'll sort of find its life on video now that it's more readily available. I still need to see it. Uh, maybe it's a good thing that the top 10 episode got pushed back a little bit. It'll give me the opportunity to finally see this because, uh, as Paul mentions, Brian Duffield, man, he's, he's killing it this year. Uh, a couple of his movies may very well, have wound up on my top 10. I don't know, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I tell you, I tell you one that didn't, 
that he wrote, and it's uh, through no fault of the movie, is uh, Spontaneous. I, I, I watched Spontaneous. Paul, when did I tell you? About a week, week and a half ago, something like that? And I absolutely adore that film. I, I, I oh, love yeah. it. It's probably my second favorite movie of the year. But as Paul and I had a bit of a, a, a text argument about, I don't <laughs> know that I can bring myself to put it on a top 10 horror list. Um, I, I, I really, really love the movie. I can't sing its praises enough. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the point of the conversation where I would actually tell listeners out there what the movie's about to try and entice them to watch it, I'm not going to do that. If you don't know anything about the movie, all's the better. Just please go and watch Spontaneous. See it sight unseen. Do not watch the trailer. Do not let anybody tell you about it. Just enjoy its surprises as, as they sort of wash over you. It's one of the sweetest, funniest, also most shocking movies I've seen uh, all year. And yet, I just, I don't know, Paul, am I crazy? I, I, I know you disagree with me, but I am, am I actually insane for not considering it to be a horror movie? <laughs> I, well, and um, our, our, our text arguments are always very entertaining, by the way. They're, they're less arguments and more just weird, like, rants like parallel rants, not so much at each other, just more. Well, there's uh, the, the inciting <laughs> text message that we have. And then you kind of have your conversation and I have my conversation. Yeah, and, right. We just and eventually talk they alongside each other. Um, it's anyway. not unlike this podcast sometimes. <laughs> right. We had one last night that I think would have made a really good aside during a podcast, but I digress. Um, I'm not even talking about Spontaneous. So Spontaneous is my favorite film of the year. Um, I adore Spontaneous. It just tapped into my soul. Uh, It's everything I was feeling and thinking in 2020 in a movie. Um, My my thing about calling it horror. So I, I think the beauty of a list like this or genres in general is like, a movie is sort of how it hits you. I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer. So I think it's fair for you to say like, oh, you know, for me, this really isn't horror. So it's not going to be on my list. But I think it's also fair for somebody else to say, for me, this really does fit kind of how I view the horror genre. And I think movies like Spontaneous are always going to challenge us because it's so many genres all at once. You know, I think you could put this movie on a drama list. You could put it on a comedy list. And I think you could put it on a horror list um, because at the end of the day, what's driving the film is a genre conceit. It's it's people exploding, which is horrific, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and there's okay, sure. listeners out there. If you it's, do want to go ahead and watch the trailer, that's fine. I, uh, I mean, I don't think that really <laughs> that happens within two seconds of the movie. Started. Fair enough, fair so, enough. Spoilers for the first two seconds of, of spontaneous. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that there's enough there, uh, to, to fall into genre territory. And then I just, I, I responded to it more than any other movie I saw this year. So it it has to sort of be incorporated into that list for me. But again, I, I get what you're saying is that it in many ways is, is, is multiple genres and not exclusively or specifically or. Well, it, it's not even the fact that it does touch multiple genres. It, it's just, I guess, it comes down to what I felt the intent of the movie was, which is, you know, I, I don't 
feel like the movie ever intended to horrify. You know, a, a, a lot of the shocks in the movie are actually kind of comic in a way. You know, there is maybe one briefly uh, tense sequence, you know, I'd a third of the way through. There's, a, there's some moments. There, 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 is, there is a major, there is, in fact, there is a major set piece that happens about, what would you say, three quarters of the way through the movie that is very tense. I don't know that... I, I don't know. It, it just it, it's it's hard I, to talk about. How to it it is without ruining details. anything. Yeah, so it's I don't, one of those things. But I, I don't want to ruin anything about the movie. I'll say this: whether or not it ultimately winds up on my horror list doesn't really matter because it's not a knock against the movie, whether I consider it to be horror or not. Sure. What it is is one of the best damn movies I've seen in ages. Uh, possibly the best movie of the year if not it's i mean because the other movie that actually will be on my horror list uh, is currently occupying the number one spot not only horror but movies period um but spontaneous is probably the one movie that i saw in 2020 that seemed to sum up the year obviously it didn't intend to it was made well in advance but it, it seemed to speak so specifically to the moment that we're currently in um uh, you know unintentionally or you know, sure, but um, you know, and just the the two lead performances is that uh, Catherine Langford and Charlie Plummer, two of the best that I've seen uh, in the past year. And again, it's just it, it's going to win you over, I think, in so many ways when you watch it. It's it's a really sweet coming of age story. It's 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 a great romance. Um, it, it has some wonderful things to say about you know the world in which we currently live, and it's also just wickedly wickedly funny and smart as hell and. Uh, and so, so surprising in so many different kinds of ways. I mean, just some of the choices that the filmmaker makes in the movie, like some of the edits, some of the, uh, you know, the... Okay, I'm not going to run anymore. Never mind. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> yeah. All I'll say is spontaneous thumbs up, please. Even though the poster looks terrible, even though the trailer oh, no. is kind of blah, get out there and watch the movie. And I, I, I doubt you'll be disappointed. Uh, that said, Daniel, have you seen Spontaneous yet? Yeah, I have. To be honest, I, I would have never considered to put it on a horror list. To me, it feels much more like uh, a John Green adaptation, like Fault in Our Stars, than any horror movie. I, I get it. Like, honestly, I think the whole discussion of what is or isn't horror is, is largely pretty pointless. Like, I always say, it's horror if you want it to be horror. And then that's kind yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, I like Spontaneous. I, I kind of feel like I didn't. I just didn't connect to it like a lot of other people did, but I thought it was a good movie. I liked it. And that's kind of my big hot take. <laughs> hot take. I was hoping that, that should be it... a new segment for uh, Hammer Pub is Daniel Epler's hot takes. Like oh, that could be out. how we begin. We'll do that. I we'll just recorded three minutes. <laughs> I just recorded episode. an episode of Cobwebs on Van Helsing where I had many positive things to say. So there were hot takes on there. Oh, nice. Excited. You know, it is weird. Okay, and I, I know we just talked about how labels may or may not be important or not. I don't know. But Van Helsing, for example, I would call that a horror movie, even though it's obviously not trying to horrify at any point either. But at least it deals in genre tropes enough to where I would feel comfortable calling it or, say, Resident Evil or Underworld. You know, those are horror movies that never really intend to horrify, I don't think. A lot of horror um, movies don't, though, I think. True, true. But whereas with, I guess with Spontaneous to me, the reason is, is that it doesn't really seem to to sort of delve in the genre tropes or intend to horrify either. But again, you know, 
I, I, I might be completely wrong. Or, again, does it even matter? Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see when we record if it shows up on my list, Jinx. I don't know. I might have something to say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. I can't, I can't go into it. I, you know, I got to save it for the cast. But, you just uh, said I, it was your number one movie. And I said it was my horror. number one we've movie of the year outside of horror. I didn't say if it counts as horror. But if it does for me, then, I mean, you can do the math, I suppose. Paul, are you going to look me in the microphone right now and tell me that that's not your number one horror movie of the year? I can neither confirm nor deny uh, until we record. So No spoilers, guys. I'm going to listen yeah, to that. Yeah, no spoilers on this. So. <laughs> All right. Paul, what have you seen recently that you can talk about that may or may not pop up on your top? So I, I, I can't talk about the, the multitude of 2020 movies I've seen. <laughs> I have so much to say about all of them. And that's what I'm prepared to talk about. But I won't say anything <laughs> about any of those. And instead, I'll, I feel like my MO on these like uh, prior to commentary things is I always bring up non-horror movies. Um, so even though I have been watching a few horror, I'm going to talk about uh, the first three Mission Impossible films so sit down buckle up <laughs> we're gonna have a lot to say no i won't go too deep uh so i i decided uh it's a new a new year um and one of my things this year is i want to catch up on franchises that i haven't seen because there are a shocking amount of franchises that i've just never watched so uh jinx knows this uh i've i've never seen uh the rocky franchise i've never seen rambo i've never seen resident evil you know, it's, I've never it's seen funny. a whole bunch of random ones. Rocky, whatever Rambo, you, and Resident Evil. That's the rank. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever you start one of these franchises, you know, it's probably a great idea to just yeah. stick with them and just finish <laughs> yeah, them out all in one that, go. Uh, so uh, I did watch Rocky and Rambo one each uh, in a back to back, and that was a pretty uh, insane pairing. Uh, those were both great movies, uh, and I've got the I've got the rest of them, and I will watch them. But first, I have to watch six Mission Impossible films. Um, so. <sighs> Uh, I watched one, one, two, and three, um, and uh, my takeaway so far, my hot take is, yeah, pretty good, <laughs> pretty fun. <laughs> I mean, they're not, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I hadn't seen one, two, and three since the theaters, and I did see all of them in theaters. I will say, when I first saw two in theaters, I really hated it, but I think it was because I didn't know, like, what I was getting into with a a, a John Woo movie, you know, so I was like, kind of unprepared for the doves uh and it it kind of caught me by surprise and um this time around i definitely responded to it more i still think that movie is a bit too bloated uh for its own good um and i gotta say out of the first three my favorite one so far is part three which has surprised me because i'm not the biggest abrams guy um but i thought his say you know, what yeah, we we had this text conversation. We're not going to go too deep into the Abrams stuff here, but uh, I'm not a huge Abrams guy. I think he's uh, sometimes he's really good at first acts. Let's put it that way. He can do a first act pretty damn well. Don't know that he can carry it on home sometimes, but uh, you know. Uh, hey, have, three... you, uh, have you ever seen Lost though? I have seen Lost Jinx, um, and I am not nearly drunk enough to talk about Lost. Talk, so you guys get into we're gonna, Lost. I am we're going to table. We're going to table the Lost talk uh, for a, for a different time. That'll be on our. But uh, no, I mean, you know, he does the thing in three where you you see sort of a scene from the end at the beginning, which I normally feel like is kind of a lazy story conceit. Um, here it worked 
Jinx. He gave me a hard time about this. It it, it worked there, um, and I liked it. And I mean, definitely showing me Philip Seymour Hoffman being like the world's most intense villain is is certainly going to grip me and make me want to watch your movie. Um, so by leading with the the film's best scene, I am definitely all in. Although I I do think there's a bit of diminishing return there when you peak within the first five minutes. Still, uh, the movie was very enjoyable. I cared about the characters. I thought, you know, they did a good job of endearing me to these people better than the first two films did. It was less convoluted uh, than the first two movies because the first two movies are incredibly convoluted considering how little actually is happening. Um, I'm still at the not same sure what time, Impossible is about. Yeah, right. At the same time, they're very entertaining and and the action's well done and and it's cool to see you know, Tom Cruise be an action hero. He's good at it. Um, I'm looking forward to the latter films in the franchise because those are the ones people have been like yelling at me to watch for a long time. So I have a feeling those are going to be, you know, sort of high up on my list. Um, But yeah, I'm having fun with my franchise rewatch of Mission Impossible. I I adore that franchise. I really do. I I, I love that the series is very much... um kind of a showcase for each of the directors that tackles, you know, their installments. I, I don't think Macquarie counts, or at least the last half of the franchise counts, because it's Macquarie. He's kind of doing his own mini franchise things set within the larger series. So, you know, but I, I, and I love his work. I really do, but I'm kind of wanting to see another filmmaker come in and kind of take a whack at that world now. You know, I, I mean, at one point I think uh, Joe Carnahan was rumored to, uh, to direct an installment. And I can't even imagine what that would look like, but, uh, but I love, you know, I love that the first mission impossible, it's a Brian De Palma movie, like through and through, you know, you need to to give Joe Lynch one of them. (laughs) I I watched watched the hell out of that movie. Could you imagine a mission impossible movie with Tom Cruise just in one room fighting off leagues of baddies? I would watch the hell out of that movie. Yeah, man. I'm saying, (laughs) uh, Daniel, what else have you seen? Yeah, so the next one I watched, uh, largely because of a Paul Farrell recommendation on the Dead Ringers podcast, I remember him talking about the severed arm from 1973. And uh, that just kind of told me that I think this is going to be a must-buy for the next Vinegar Syndrome Black Friday sale. So I did buy it in the Black Friday sale. And I loved this movie. Like, I almost couldn't believe how much I loved it. It is basically a slasher movie uh, from 1973. But, like, Paul, as you said, it's shocking how many of the tropes it predates because this is even a year before Black Christmas. Yeah. And slight spoiler, I don't think it's an important spoiler. (laughs) It even predates Black Christmas on the call is coming from inside the house trope, which I was pretty amazed by. Uh, But, you know, beyond being a nasty exploitation flick, which it, it definitely is. It's a really interesting story, and it's a bold, crazy, audacious story of the likes of which I've never seen before. And uh, I think the actors are actually pretty good for the kind of movie it is, especially. And it's a pretty engaging drama about almost entirely about men. This is one thing that differs it from slasher movies. There is no sexuality or nudity and barely even women in this movie. It's very much a movie about masculinity. It's the thing for slasher movies. Um and I, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. That's awesome, man. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. Yeah, that one um, uh, caught me by surprise. I I took it as a recommendation from Brad, uh, Brad Henderson, 
Um, and I'm a uh, annual subscriber to Vinegar Syndrome because of movies like that. You know, it's like I love how they manage to unearth things that I just never would have seen um, and then become some of my favorite movies. Um, so, I mean, that was one of the best discoveries I had, you know, the last year. So it's great to hear that uh, that you enjoyed it so much. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 crazy how prescient it was um when it comes to the slasher subgenre and and you gotta wonder how many filmmakers at that time saw it and sort of were influenced by it because it, it some of the stuff that it's doing can't possibly be coincidence you know there, there's certain things in it that just very clearly grew into tropes um uh, so yeah no I'm, I'm glad you had such a good time with it yeah it's really really good stuff beautiful slipcover too Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to buy this movie. Can we just talk for two seconds about how great Vinegar Syndrome is? Oh, yeah. No, um, I, I'm, I'm new to them, and I'm loving it so far. Well, I just I just got the uh, the new Beastmaster set from them, and uh, rest in peace, Tanya Roberts, for real this time, apparently, which makes me sad. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, they I just... That. Yeah, well... <laughs> To to tell listeners if they don't know, uh, Tanya Roberts, who was the star of the Beastmaster, uh, was announced as having passed away a couple of days ago, and then it turns out that her rep had gotten it wrong, and in fact she was still quite alive. But it was just announced earlier this evening that she did in fact pass away. Uh, not the initial time, but actually, I guess earlier today. It's all very confusing. I don't. Wow, that's really know. confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. She didn't pass away initially at the time that they said that she did, but then she eventually did pass away. So, in any case, uh, wonderful actress. She was wonderful in The Beastmaster. Beastmaster is a great film, and Vinegar Syndrome did one hell of a job, I think, with that package. Uh, what else did they release with that wave, Paul? You're a subscriber. They did that, and was it Fade to Black, I believe, uh, which I also snagged, and... Uh, a couple of other Silent things, Madness which... was another big one, 3D slasher yeah, movie. Uh, Se- Severed Arm was like the halfway to Black, Black Friday sale. Um, so that came out alongside like Rad and a couple other things. But yeah, most recently, you know, with Beastmaster, it was uh, Fade to Black. Uh, yeah, Silent Madness in 3D, which was a really great 3D release. Um, I'm lucky I still have a functioning 3D television. So whenever I get my hands on like a really nicely restored 3d horror film, it's, it's always a blast to watch. And uh, the transfer was just immaculate. Um, so that was a really fun slasher to discover. Um, and then they had a few uh, VSA releases. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Action USA. Action USA. Yeah. Um, but it, it's this time around was, was pretty awesome. Um, and even like the month before they did, um, uh, um, dial code Santa or whatever, you know, the French home alone sort of horror film. Um, I can't remember. It's like, I'm blanking on the title deadly games, deadly games, uh, dial code Santa Claus. Uh, if you've never seen that, it's, it's like a 1989 French horror film that's basically like a horror version of Home Alone um, with a kid Soul. sort of. Yeah. Oh, it's it's <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, I I had seen it a couple years ago. I got a digital copy of it, but this is the first physical release it's had in the U.S. And they actually did a 4K release of it. 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, this most recent time, they they also did a new Forgotten Gialli collection, which uh, that first set was really great if you're a Giallo fan. Um, these are some pretty rare Giallos, really well restored. So, And then uh, Don't Panic. They finally put out Don't Panic, uh, which that movie's long overdue. Uh, if you've never seen that, it's sort of a, a Spanish bonkers Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff. Um, and it's just phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very, very crazy effects and it involves a Ouija board and a demonic presence. And that's very sort of Freddy esque and it's really savage, but also fun. Um, yeah, it was a VHS sort of thing that everyone always loved. And it, and it had some repertory screenings in the last couple of years. Like, I even think it, I think it played at Fantastic Fest like a couple of years ago and that started gaining like traction for it. But um, yeah, Vinegar finally put it out. So pretty much everything they release in horror is to me always exciting. It's always exciting to see what they're going to put out and I'm always looking forward to watching it. Yeah, I agree. I uh, They become one of those companies that it's getting very easy to trust what they put out. You know, the the fact that they put it out in the first place, it's kind of like, and it's a mark of quality, I think. Yeah, and well, and they also, regardless of, and it's almost weird to say, but it's like regardless of the quality of the film, because <laughs> sometimes you know they they find some oddities. The work and effort they put into the release makes it worth owning as a collector. Um, you know, they they their transfers are immaculate. Um, as Daniel noted, their slip covers are like the best slip covers. I know some people really roll their eyes when people talk about slipcovers, but these <laughs> things are not just pieces of cardboard. They're they're thick. They're art. They're basically another piece of art that you get with the film. Um, there's an attention to detail and a love that goes into the craft of the releases that makes it feel worth it um, and that makes you want to support them as a company. Um, so, you know, I... I, for one, I think out of all the independent labels, they're the ones that I get the most excited about when they put out releases because I know that they're going to give me something that I haven't heard of yet that could be a new favorite versus somebody else who's probably going to give me either just, you know, crazy schlock or something really beloved that's been released before but maybe never gotten a great release, you know, which is what we're kind of seeing now from Scream Factory and Arrow. Although big props to Scream for the work they're doing on uh, Hammer. But at any rate, um, yeah, I, th- I think Vinegar is one to always watch out for. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of Scream Factory, I'm finally uh, <laughs> finally upgrading all of my Draculas now. Uh, they should be here tomorrow. But uh had to split them between, what was it, Scream Factory and I think Warner Archive. But I yeah. finally uh, finally had them all. You know, I... I don't think it occurred to me that that, that entire franchise is nine films long. Um, for whatever reason, I, I, I had it in my head that there were less films in that franchise than uh, the Frankenstein cycle. But uh, but it's also been ages since I revisited them all. So I'm kind of looking forward to doing that because, and you and I have talked about <laughs> this on here before, but yeah, I'm not the biggest Dracula fan as it were you know when it comes to hammer i don't get me wrong there a couple of those draculas are among the best that hammer ever did i just mean the oh, franchise yeah. as a whole is kind of you know it's a bit wanting here and there but i'm hoping that on this next revisit that i uh 
you know, maybe a little more fond of them. I don't know. We'll see. But there, uh, there are certainly more valleys in that franchise than there are in something like Frankenstein. You know, I think that's part of it is that Frankenstein one being fewer films. There's more of a consistency with Frankenstein. Cushing cared about that character versus Lee, who was like pretty much pissed off that he was doing it <laughs> almost the entire time. So I mean, Please there's definitely stop a level. Asking me. Yeah, right. There's a different level of like craft, I think, that goes into the Dracula films. That's not to say that I don't enjoy them. I really do. Um, and I agree with you. Some of them are my favorite. And I'm, I, I was just rewatching uh, the final film of that franchise, The uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, today, which I think is a blast. Which you know, he should have been in. Cush, or Lee should have been in that one because it was actually. It's hilarious good. that that's the one that he, he's like, I'll do scars, but I won't do that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, I, I think he drew the line because of satanic rights. And he was yeah, like, I'm no, not coming yeah. back for one more. And it was the no same director. What. Yeah. He was like, I'm not working with that guy again. And he didn't want to go to hong kong and there was a lot of things although it's funny because they sold that movie like they basically lied and said lee was coming back and that was how they got you know 25 percent of the financing for it but at any rate um yeah I, I think the dracula franchise though has a lot of like because of all those weird things about it i think it like it's more fascinating in some ways because there's just so many bizarre stories behind how they, how they were made and and why they happened and when they happened and things like that and um, the fact that Brides doesn't even have Dracula in it is really interesting to me. Um, but anyway. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I'm such an opposite opinion as you guys because the Hammer Dracula franchise is my favorite horror franchise. Full stop. Out even outside of Hammer, and uh, the Frankenstein cycle, I, I find that one to be just such peaks and valleys. For me, there are three movies in there that I think are basically masterpieces, and the rest of it, I just think it's real up and down. But the Dracula franchise, I I love so much. Daniel, it has been wonderful having you on the podcast. Um, before you go, uh, <laughs> were there any, any, any Jinx does not have show? thick skin Just, when it comes to the pushing <laughs> Frankenstein. You know, I also <laughs> really <laughs> like the protagonist of Drag Me to Hell, so I'll just lay that. Hey, out there. all right, let's get into <laughs> the Christine conversation. I agree. Um, uh, I like uh, having an ally in Daniel. Uh, no, I, 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 and I should say, I mean, the way I'm describing this might make it sound like I. I'm not a fan. I love the uh, Dracula franchise. I, I really do. I really love it. I, I do like the Frankenstein franchise a bit more, but both of them are amongst my favorites. So, I mean, even though I'm kind of like, oh yeah, there's valleys, I, I still really love them. Um, but I, I, I think it's cool that it's interesting to see how different people sort of, you know, move towards one or the other. Cause they do have distinctly different flavors. I think, I think they, they offer different sorts of things. Um, and you know, I think depending on my mood almost is what I'd prefer sometimes. Yeah, I do. Love, it is worth noting. I, I mean, horror of Dracula is a masterpiece and Brides oh, yeah. of Dracula is tied with Frankenstein created woman as being my favorite hammer movie. Um, I love 80, 1972. Uh, I love seven golden vampires beyond that. I, you know, the only one that I recall outright disliking is the one that a lot of people seem really fond of, which is Prince of darkness. And I just don't see it. And I'm hoping that the next rewatch, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll see something in it that I love, but you know, that's the one to me where it's like, you know, you have Christopher Lee playing Dracula. Damn it. Let him say something, give him something interesting to do. There was a time in my life where I felt the same. So I'll say that I've grown on Prince of Darkness a whole lot. 
I will. Well, I, Jinx, I hope I do. Jinx also uh, doesn't like Curse of the Werewolf, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, know if, I, I get I, it I, there. I, I mean, I love that movie, but I get it. That movie is insane. I, I love that movie. I will never understand someone not liking it. I love it too. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm not like bananas where this is going. In every way. I, I, I feel like I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm the one You're man just, out here. I'm not digging it. It's cool. But, just look, I, I, I haven't I, had I, a well, drink I, yet. It's great. I've got uh, I've got Paul taking a couple shots at me. I got okay, hot, right. hot take That's... Epler here. You, you know, brought up, you know what? In my defense, though, you brought up Lost early, and that I... kind of put me in a sour situation. I, I so. did, and that's fair. <laughs> All right, tell you what, um, do you... Paul, do you have any other movies you'd like to talk about before we dive in? Or actually. Uh, I... If you oh, do, then I have one more as well. So if you if you have anything, right, you can we can. We we've pretty much extended this initial component to be at least forty five minutes at this point, so we can keep going. Um, the uh, the only other thing I've been watching is another franchise. I've been watching it before bed every night. Uh, the Inner Sanctum Mysteries, starring Lon Chaney Jr. from the forties. Are you guys familiar with those at all? Familiar. I've never seen any though. I've never seen any of the movies, but I used to listen to. Uh, <laughs> I was such a nerd when I was like ten years old. I used to listen to audio cassette recordings of The Shadow, and also oh. the Inner Sanctum um, uh, radio show back in the day. Uh, funny enough, I am staring in my. I'm, a, I'm at my computer desk, and I'm staring at cassette tapes of The Shadow right now. Complete original, unedited broadcasts of the radio show. Oh my uh, god! Do you have so cassette tapes, Paul? Yeah. Do you have the little black box set? Uh, I don't have a box set. I just have a whole bunch I bought at a used store once. Like a used store had like a whole bunch of them, and I got them all for like three bucks. Did they have red spines? Uh, let me get them out. No. Oh. Well, this was pointless. I'm sorry. <laughs> they have like yellow. They're all different. They're like hodgepodge. Anyway, I'm I'm also a nerd is what I'm getting at. Um, but at any rate, uh, The Inner Sanctum Mysteries, yeah, it's based on an old radio show. There were six movies made in the series, all between, like, what, 1944 and 1946 or 47. So they were all made in really tight proximity. They're all approximately, like, 60 to 70 minutes long. So they're very, very digestible. Um, it, it really just sort of feels like like Twilight Zone episodes with a little bit more production value. Um, they're all starring roughly the same cast. They all have a similar sort of style to them. Um, and they're just movies like that for me at this point are really just comfort food. Um, I love seeing Lon Chaney Jr. just kind of ham it up a little bit in a supernatural story. Um, you know, some of them have admittedly sort of a uh, borderline. I mean, you have to watch them in the context of when they were made, but there's some slightly offensive characterizations of women and minorities and things that show up, especially the second film in the series titled Weird Woman, which is about like a woman from South Africa who practices voodoo and is very exotic. And, you know, there's some questionable things that that movie does um having said all that there's still a lot of fun um i particularly enjoyed the frozen ghost which was a movie all about um psychic energy and being able to sort of make someone appear as though they were dead 
um, by using hypnotism. And there's like a whole wax museum component, which I found really fascinating that kind of reminded me of um, the mystery at the wax museum, you know, or obviously the movies that that inspired. Um, So that was kind of a fun one. Dead man's eyes was a good time. That's like, this movie has the most like ridiculous plot line. It's like a doctor who um, is accidentally gets acid in his eyes. So he goes blind. So his father-in-law is like, well, we can do this strange surgery where I can take a living man's eyes and put them in yours, but they'd have to donate their eyes. So I guess if I die, then you can have my eyes and then he dies. So they think he killed him so he could steal his eyes. It's like the most bizarre fucking plot line. And it, and it all takes place in 60 minutes. It's like all this crazy shit happens. Um, and you know, people's lives get turned upside down and, and somehow it all works out in the end every time. So, um, yeah, I've just been having a really good time watching these at night before bed. Uh, there's a really great, uh, Mill Creek box set, a Blu-ray box set that was put out that has all of them remastered, uh, with a few special features. Uh, the movies look really great. And I think I got the box set for like 30 bucks. So it was pretty affordable. So anybody that's into sort of old black and white Twilight Zoney things uh, and uh, likes Lon Chaney Jr. should definitely check them out. They're really fun. No, that's fantastic. I need to buy that set. Um, I've seen it pop up on Amazon from time to time as a suggestion. I just haven't gotten around to picking it up, but uh, I think I will now. Yeah. Yeah, I always knew, especially given the nature of cobwebs, I'd be getting to it eventually. But I, I definitely feel more sold now. That sounds really great. That's awesome. Okay, I guess the last thing I have to mention is uh, just I was on Shutter last night. I was trying to knock out uh, yet another movie that I thought might vie for a space in my top ten. And, uh, you know, it very well might have, except it's uh, it, it kind of has that spontaneous thing going on where I can't bring myself to actually call it horror, uh, which surprised me a little bit. But uh, have either of you seen A Good Woman is Hard to Find? I have not. I have not. So it's currently on Shudder. It's an Irish film starring Sarah Bolger, who is fantastic in the lead role. It's kind of... um, It's not a horror film. Uh, But it's kind of a crime film, kind uh, kind of a revenge movie, kind of... In the final act, but mostly it's just a portrait of a single mother doing her best to survive in some really dire circumstances. And um, and I wouldn't want to get into it much further than that. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not giving spoilers for anything that I'm talking about tonight, except the kinds of movies that I'm mentioning really depend on you not knowing that much about them before you go into them. So I'm not going to spoil much about it. It's safe to say... It is one of the better movies from 2020 that I've seen. Uh, that lead performance from Sarah Bolger is absolutely incredible. Uh, the movie is really, really dark and upsetting. Um, and But, oh God, how to say this and dance around uh, any potential spoilers. It does get very violent and very bloody in spots, and unexpectedly so. Uh, it, it, the movie does a very good job of sort of reeling you in, uh, sort of living this woman's life alongside her throughout the course of you know the first 30 minutes of the film. You really kind of get invested just watching what she's going through, trying to raise two children and trying to deal with the uh, loss of her husband. And uh, I won't get into that too much. Um but as the movie sort of turns, you know, and as this uh, element of dread is introduced into the story, 
you know, your heart is already completely with this family. And so as a result, you know, uh, the movie really, really gets under your skin and sort of makes you uncomfortable and like deeply afraid for what her uh, circumstances are. And, uh, but the character has a really fascinating arc in the movie and a really believable arc. And it's very earned it. Uh, you know, I've seen movies like this before that all too quickly take the route with their, uh, protagonists, especially female protagonists where, you know, something perhaps terrible happens to them and then they become kind of a warrior woman. You know, we've all seen those movies, uh, or they become avenging angels. And this movie seems much more content to stay grounded in reality. And I think it's so much better as a result. Um, I don't know if that's clear as mud. I apologize. I just don't want to run anything. Uh, but I will say if you have shutter and honestly, it just, just get shutter. If you don't have shutter, get it. Uh, but definitely check it out. It's one of their newer, uh, newer acquisitions, I think. And it's, uh, definitely well worth the viewing. Uh, again, wouldn't necessarily call it horror, but uh, so it won't be making my top 10 list, but it is absolutely one of the better films that 2020 had to offer. I definitely need to check that out then. That sounds awesome. So, all right. Unless, uh, Daniel, Paul, do either of you have anything else to talk about? Oh, well, I've never been here before, so I can go as long or as short <laughs> as you want. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we, we usually try and... Uh, get to the movie at about 45 minutes in. We are currently at 45 minutes. Uh, so if it's okay with you guys, let's go ahead and dive into the movie proper, which is going to be The Old Dark House. Now, this is a movie that just hit Blu-ray in Mill Creek's wonderful 20-film Hammer Horror box. Well, actually, it wasn't Hammer Horror, was it? It was just a Hammer box set. Uh, that Mill Creek collection, it wasn't just horror movies, was it? It was also uh, thrillers and uh, a couple of swashbucklers in there, it looks like. Even some war movies. Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff on here. That's pretty cool. I, I love that it gives, you know, everybody knows Hammer for their horror movies, but, uh, you know, they had some really great other films there before they really became known for their gothic chillers. So uh, there's one, uh, a Peter Cushing film uh, called uh, it's a Cash, Cash on, on Demand. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it actually went out of print for a while. It was on a DVD box set that uh, went out of print and became very expensive. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I'm very glad that it's easily accessible on Blu-ray now. But among all of the films that are on there, we have The Old Dark House from 1963, which is a remake of the James Whale Universal Horror film from 19, I want to say 32. Uh, if anyone knows otherwise, please correct me. Um. Yeah, so, guys, if we want to go ahead and cue it up to the very beginning here, I will do a countdown, and we'll go ahead and start, and, uh, yeah, we're going to wing it. We'll we'll see how this goes. So, are we ready? I am ready. First, I am ready. First frame is going to be the Columbia Torch Lady. Let's go ahead and press play in five, four, three, two, one, and we're playing. Look at her. She, Standing she, there with her torch. I know. She she's aged very well over the years. It always makes me think of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. <laughs> okay, so this opening sequence, uh, I think it is worth noting, is 
actually drawn, or at least based on drawings, by Charles Adams, who is, of course, known for the Adams family. Um, I remember when I first wrote for a magazine called Horror Hound, the first thing that I ever wrote for them was a retrospective on the Adams family, the entire franchise. And uh, I think the most fun that I had wasn't only revisiting the movies and, you know, the, the cartoon and the old television series, but also just digging into Charles Adams' original works, which were really much darker and more macabre than uh, maybe fans of the TV show and later movies realize. Uh, there was kind of a bite to his early work that's really, really fun. And the cool thing about this, the fact that he did this artwork in the opening moments of The Old Dark House is he was inspired by the original Universal Horror movie. In fact, uh, Boris Karloff's character, <clears throat> I love that he's signing the frame here. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that jumped out at me the first time I saw it. I love that. <laughs> and that is his signature, so that had to have been his hand. Uh, but that is a signature that you'll see on all of the compilations of his work and a lot of his, uh, you know, a lot of his drawings. But um, yeah, so he was inspired by the original Old Dark House from 1932. Uh, and Morgan, the, uh, the Boris Karloff character, was essentially the main inspiration for Lurch. Uh, or at least his version of Lurch, which looks pretty much just like Morgan. I think a lot of people know Lurch from the uh, the character from the TV show who isn't bearded or kind of grizzled in the way that uh, the original cartoon Lurch was. But uh, mm. yeah, so I, I, I love that they actually brought him in to do that. And in a way, <laughs> weirdly, the original Old Dark House is much more straightforward and kind of creepy and chilling. Uh, it being James Whale, of course, there is you know a bit of humor here and there, but... This movie is much more comic and uh, much more kind of borderline goofy at times. And in a way, it reminds me of the tone of the Adams Family television series from the 1960s. Um, it's also a gorgeous movie at times, too, though, it being in color. But uh, I don't know. Can I ask, what was your first uh, experience with this movie, guys? When did you first uh, lay eyes on this? Because not only is this a hammer horror film, which is noteworthy in itself, but it's William Castle directing a Hammer horror film and William Castle directing a Hammer horror film, which is a remake of a Universal classic. So what did you guys make of this movie when you first caught it ages ago or yesterday or whenever? <laughs> uh, I guess I'll jump in first. I um, I watched this movie for the first time, actually, when I got this new Mill Creek 20 film set, because I actually I made a point to watch every single movie on this set. And, you know, this was just one of them. And, uh, as far as how I went going into it, I, I'm a really very big fan of the James whale film. Uh, I think too often that film gets overshadowed by the invisible man and his first two Frankenstein movies, which is partially for good reason, because those are just staggering works of, of horror cinema. But the old dark house is, is a terrific movie as well. Kind of, I do think it is a horror comedy much like this one is. It's just, it's just much better at pulling off the comedy and it's, it's less uh, obvious and overt. Um, but I, I went into this movie with high hopes because I am a, I am a huge hammer fan for anyone who doesn't know. I do consider it my favorite kind of horror movie. And I'm also a big William Castle guy. I haven't seen everything William Castle has done, but I've, I've seen most of the big stuff. And I, I love his movies, particularly um, a couple of his more underrated ones. Mr. Sardonicus and Homicidal are just two huge favorites of mine. So this movie had a big pedigree going into it. And um, and I was not a big fan of this movie, honestly. And I've only seen it the one time, uh, sadly, going into this. And um, 
but yeah, the the comedy is just it's it's goofy, but at the same time, like for the most part, I can't really tell you what the joke is or like what the setup and punchline is. It's just silly things happen. There's a, there's particularly something towards the end where someone just has a ridiculously enormous bump on their head because they got bumped on the head, and that's kind of the entire joke. Uh, this guy who's on the screen right now actually is is probably one of the better parts of the movie. Uh, the bigger man who who dies and then his brother comes back later. But um, not one of my favorite Hammer movies. Not one of my favorite William Castle movies. Uh, I guess with that, I'll turn it over to Paul. Yeah. Um, so I guess piggybacking on what you were saying, I did not see this movie until, uh, gosh, a few days ago <laughs> for this podcast. Luckily, I watched it because I didn't know we were recording uh this this episode tonight um i did see it <laughs> so that's important um yeah i mean I, I i agree i mean watching this movie feels like it feels like william castle wanted to make a different movie than hammer wanted to make um and it feels like half the cast is sort of on the same page as hammer and then a part of the cast is on the same page as castle like take the the protagonist, for example, Tom, you know, this guy feels like he's out of a slapstick American comedy. Um, and he's doing his little bits alongside British actors who are acting like they're in a weird, eccentric, sort of repressed British gothic or comedy ish thing. And they just don't gel very well. And it comes off a lot more, more often than not, as awkward or ill-timed um, or just poorly put together. Um, and that sort of carries through the whole movie. Still, it's fascinating to watch it because it, I, I've never quite seen anything like it. Um, it feels more like a like a TV show, like in a lot of ways, like a silly, like oh, like you're saying, kind of like an episode of the Adams Family, which would be more forgivable, I guess, because you're like, oh, well, this is just a random episode; it doesn't have to be great. <laughs> you know, the comedy doesn't always have to work. Um, and yeah, it's just such a bizarre oddity, and I think it's it's pretty clear when you watch it that what you know what hammer wanted probably wasn't quite what castle was intending on delivering. Yeah. And I will say I am a, like you guys probably are too. I'm guessing a lot of horror fans are, but I am a huge fan of the original Adams family TV show. And I, I think that show is so funny. And I think even to this day, like the humor just really, really holds up. Um, but I just don't think that that is the case with this movie. And also just the iconography of the Adams family show is, is so iconic and it's so instant. Well, it's instantly iconic. Like it's just so beautiful. And, and, you know, outside of some pretty looking sets, which is, hammer tends to have uh, this movie doesn't have anything like that you know there's no horror imagery to stick with you in this movie right and and well and it's clear that hammer didn't have much enthusiasm for it because you know what it came out in 1963 in the u.s but but in the uk they didn't release it for several years i think it was like the later 60s when it finally hit theaters there they shelved it you know and i, I think that's it just kind of speaks to the fact that i'm guessing um they they weren't really happy with uh <laughs> with the final result and didn't didn't uh castle get teamed up with them mainly because of columbia it wasn't something hammer like sought out 
I think it was more like a distribu- distribution thing. Like since Columbia was putting out their movies and Columbia had a contract with Castle, they sort of paired them up because it seemed like a logical choice. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a bummer because like Hammer, you're working with William Castle, like do something big. And and, right. and really, if you want to watch the Hammer version of William Castle movie, you should watch Mr. Sardonicus. That's that movie. But which is this wonderful. isn't. Oh, my gosh. It's so wonderful. I love it. It is a great film. You know, it's funny, though. I mean, you would have felt that William Castle might have felt the same way, too, and how he approached this, because William Castle was making a Hammer film. You know, it seems like. I don't know, maybe at first glance it sounds like a dream pairing, and yet ultimately what we have here is something that's ultimately neither fish nor fowl. I mean, it's it, it's kind of gothic, and you know it does have the kind of production value that we do expect, as you noted, but yeah, the, just tonally, it's all over the place. It doesn't feel like Hammer, no, but it doesn't really feel like Castle either that much. I mean, arguably there are moments that feel like maybe some of his hammy introductions, you know, or interjections. I mean, there is... <laughs> Maybe, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie, him popping up out of nowhere uh, like he does in Sardonicus would have felt maybe less out of place in this movie than it did in Sardonicus, just because of the tone that we have here. But you're right, it's not completely successful. I think it is kind of charming at times. I like the guy who plays Penderel here. Uh, I do like his performance, but... It does seem like, again, as you noted, you know, there are people who... uh you know, there are actors here behaving as though they're in entirely different films. You know, uh, nobody was on the same page. And, you know, it's a bit of a bummer. And I got to say, I <laughs> I saw this movie for the first time this past summer. So we're all relatively new to this movie. I'm wondering if uh, maybe, you know, the occasional revisit might, uh, I don't know, might make us a bit more fond of it. I don't know. But then again, the problems that I have with the movie aren't easily fixed, I don't think. Uh, which we can get into later on. But I don't think it's terrible, certainly. But uh, I will say maybe one of the biggest problems that the movie has is the fact that it is a remake of a masterpiece, really, with James Whale's original. And you are right. The original movie is more of a horror comedy, but you know the, the comedy is so much more sly than what we have here. And I don't know. I, I, I'm wondering, like, what do you guys feel Castle's approach was here with the humor? Uh, he didn't write the screenplay, of course, but obviously he must have had a heavy hand in the tone that he was crafting, uh, such as it is. I mean, is it kind of like the Adams Family TV show? Maybe it's more like, and don't hate me for this because I do love the show, but they are quite different. Uh, maybe more like the Munsters? You know, tonally, it's even very similar to, uh, you know, Munsters Go Home, something like that. <laughs> well, so much of the humor in the Adams Family, it's it's all built around these characters don't understand what these characters understand. So they're reacting to crazy things as normal. And then the other characters are not reacting to it as normal. And that's sort of what it's all built on. But yeah, sort of like I mentioned, and I'm guessing Paul can probably explain this much better, but um, I just, I cannot break down in my head how the jokes work or what the jokes are. Like what exactly is the setup and the punchline, but instead it's just like silly things happen and it, it doesn't feel like it matters or I don't know, Paul, you can probably explain this much better. <laughs> no, I mean, I I'm with you. I, and, and again, I think like, cause earlier, yeah, we're talking about comparing it to old sitcoms basically. And we're talking about, you know, M's family monsters is an apt comparison in some ways, not because those shows aren't funny, but because 
a lot of the jokes in this movie feel like a sitcom setup, you know, feel like a silly one-off, like dumb thing that happens that you laugh at once and kind of move on uh, or is a running joke for an episode. And then, you know, cause there's a lot of little running jokes in this, like him falling down the trap door that comes back at the end, but, but there's nothing else to it other than the embarrassment of that. Um, and putting a normal guy, I think that, I think that's the idea. I think it is sort of that is like, Oh, here's this normal American Joe stumbling into a, a house of bizarre people and having to navigate it for 90 minutes or whatever it is. The, the problem is it, there isn't enough there <laughs> uh, to make it entertaining enough to sort of sustain that. And then a lot of the, a lot of the gimmicks and a lot of the bits aren't all that clever and don't often land um, and I don't know if that's because of, you know, I don't want to like put it all on um, Tom Poston's back. Like, I, you know, he's he's sort of the guy who's tasked with carrying this movie. Um, I don't know that he does it, but I don't know that it's entirely his fault that he flounders. I think a lot of it boils down to the script not really giving us a gripping storyline. I, I agree with you, Daniel. I don't, I don't think there's much there in terms of a narrative to follow. Like, you know, he's given all of this information about this family and, and the money that they're attempting to inherit, but really he's just trying to sell his freaking car. He's just there to sell a car. Um, and I think that's such a weird, <laughs> and like the whole thing is like, Oh, well I stay in there during the day and he leaves at night, you know, or whatever it is like that thing he keeps explaining. And, and the fact that he's sort of peddling cars in England, like, almost makes me feel like he's a proxy for um, William Castle too. Like, cause here's William Castle sort of selling his movie in a different country and trying to run in, do something really quick and get out. He kind um, of looks like Castle. Yeah. Just that's kind of how thinking. I took it is sort of like a proxy for the American director. Plus he is American. He doesn't understand these customs. He's not quite sure if it's his lack of understanding of their culture or if they really are just that strange. Um, again, I think there are a lot of comparisons to be made with something like the Adams family. I just don't think it's obviously as successful, um, or as interesting as Adams family is, but. Okay. So you actually have me wanting to rewatch this movie from the beginning through that lens, like with, uh, Pendrel being a stand in for William Castle. I wonder if the movie might not be more rewarding for that. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it is. This I think it's more his... interesting to look at it that way, but I don't know that the movie is any more successful. I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I've only seen it once, but that that was kind of my initial take. You know, it's funny you said something a moment ago when poor Penderel was bouncing around the basement. But you know, the idea that he's just this kind of regular Joe, like American guy, bouncing around, you know. Uh, this setting and running into weirdos and whatnot. How the hell did they get this movie from the original 32 film? I, I almost feel like this was an original script that was retrofitted with character names from the, uh, the original movie, you know, because there are, there are family characters in this that don't even exist in the original movie. Not that they need to, not for a remake. It just feels so completely different from the other film you know there, there's really you know you have a setting and you have character names and that's really it 
Yeah, and Hammer fought to not call it a remake because they wanted it to. They just said, "Oh, this is just a new adaptation of the novel," which it's not. I <laughs> I know, I know, it's nothing like the novel, but it's funny to me that they're like, "Oh, it's not a remake. It's it's a it's a new adaptation." Um, which Hammer loved to do. They did that all the time. <laughs> they, Hollywood they, still does that all the time. Yeah, right. But um, no, I I agree. I, it is a weird like lift from the original film, which was a bigger deal in, in Britain than it was in the U S the original old dark house, as I understand it played for much longer to much more success overseas than it did in the U S I mean, and for years it was like a lost film, you know, people thought it was gone. So by the time this came around, I I assuming the prince had surfaced by the sixties, right? Like it was, it was back in circulation, the original at that point, I think. Um, but yeah, I believe either so. way, it wasn't lost yeah. for long. I don't think. No, I think it was like what fifteen, twenty years, maybe. I don't know, even that long. But um, I do know that that they were intending on cashing in on the popularity of that. Um, and and they build it like the trailers make it seem like the funniest goddamn movie you've ever seen. <laughs> like the the posters, <laughs> like you'll die laughing. I'm like, what movie do you think you're advertising? Jeez, I mean, even if you like, even if you think these jokes land, this is not an uproarious comedy. You know what I mean? They're not playing up the laughs like it was a Laurel and Hardy joint. Like this is a totally different kind of joke. Yeah, which is curious considering that the source material is not, it's not funny at all. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, with with the remake, obviously, you know, uh, there were the attempts at humor. Um, the, the, the original James Whale movie is much more sly. The novel is not intended to be comic, not even remotely. Um, I read, I had, I, uh, I don't know if we'll have time to get into this or not, but I worked on a project that saw me uh, sort of adapting the original uh, movie as kind of a radio play uh, or an audio drama. And I, I, <laughs> I was told to sort of stick closely with the original movie, but I wound up diving back into the novel and uh, I'd never read it before. Um, so the, these were all firsts for me reading the original novel and watching the remake just for, you know, curiosity's sake. But, uh, no, the novel is much more of a character study. It's all about, you know, and I mean, you can read right off the Wikipedia page, but it nails it. It's very much concerned with the sort of post-World War One disillusionment, uh, especially with the character of Pendrel, who is not a comic figure at all in the original story. He isn't even really in, uh, you know, the whale film. He's just, you know, he's very charming. Um, but the original novel has a damn dark ending. Um which the movie, the original movie, that is sadly kind of does away with in favor of a uh, just a, a bright and cheery happy ending, which maybe better fits what Whale had made up until that point. Anyway, I don't know, but um, but I don't know. It, it's just so strange to me that these movies were ultimately known for being kind of you know in part comedies, given that the sort of well that they sprung from is anything but. I wonder if the 1932 one wasn't basically intended to be a comedy, but James Whale just cannot help but put his sense of humor into everything he touches. Yeah, I I think the original, the comedy in that movie is very subtle, Um, but I think that makes it work better and in some ways makes it funnier. You know, the fact that it that it's understated and often sort of like 
blink and you'll miss it in a way. And it, it's more tied into the, to the performances. Like it kind of feels like he's pulling a fast one on the studio. Like he's making his horror comedy while everyone just thinks he's making another Gothic horror film. Um, I, I think that speaks to sort of his talent as a filmmaker and storyteller. But I really, I mean, I know we've we've already sort of gushed on the original, but yeah, that original film, and and admittedly, maybe that sort of like clouds my viewing of this. Maybe I'm being harder on it because I really love the original, but I also don't think so because this movie's so different. You know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't feel like that film at all. So I don't feel like cheated or something. Like you know, I I wish I was watching that. I'm not reminded of it by what this movie's doing. Yeah, I mean, I love that first movie, but, like, I'm not so precious about it where I'm like, right. you better not touch that or change anything. <laughs> like, I don't care. By the way, did you it's guys enjoy like... that? Sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. I was gonna, I was going to make a Rob Zombie's Halloween joke, but I'll I'll refrain. <laughs> I was going to say, did you guys enjoy that ridiculously close-up boob shot that we got for, like, five seconds? Oh, there? yeah, yeah. Of course we did. <laughs> so, like, Look, I, I, was that Castle's <laughs> attempt at Hammer oh, Glamour? Like, there, I guess... there's nothing subtle I... about that. That's the thing, too, is, like, it's so kind of crass in its way that doesn't strike me as being hammer but it doesn't really strike me as being castle that much either i mean castle's movies are pretty horny a lot of times but not as like openly visually horny as as hammer's movies are you know hammer hammer movies are often very very like visually horny (laughs) whereas like i think castle was more like with the characters how they act and what they're saying and Things like that, but it just maybe the perfect storm. Maybe he just thought that was funny to make it in, entirely overt. Um, but yeah, it's it, it. It was almost Tex Avery there. All we needed was his yeah. eyes bugging out for a moment and his tongue lolling out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. I could have done with a little more Tex Avery in this movie. Not I, I actually, I actually, the moment I said that, I was like, I kind of wish that fusion might have made this movie pretty great. <laughs> Oh boy. Here's a weird thought. I'm I'm curious what you guys think of this. Um, so people like to talk a lot about the fact, and especially when they talk about Monty Python, that British humor is very different from American humor. So do you think maybe there were like conflicting ideas between Hammer and William Castle about what's funny? And there were so many, there were compromises on both sides that we got jokes that don't really work either way. Hmm. Yes, I do. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, and I think that happened a lot when it, it feels like sometimes, especially with the way Hammer would mount their productions, whenever they worked with an outside party, whenever they collaborated with a different studio or shot somewhere that they weren't sort of used to and they were working with a different crew, there was not a lot of like preparation done ahead of time to work with that other team and get on the same page. Um, and I think this was one of those cases where they mounted the production, they wrote their script, Castle was brought in, and then they probably just went right into production. And then as these problems and differing opinions occurred, they hammered it out, no pun intended, as they went. Um, I, I did read, what, maybe a week ago, I read a little bit about the movie, and I, and I was curious because, you know, Castle's always no, known for his gimmicks. And I did read that he did want to do like a like a marketing gimmick for this film. And like the Carreras and Hines were like, no. And there's this quote from Anthony Hines about like they wouldn't uh, accept his tomfoolery. <laughs> like, 
and he meant it in like a derogatory way. Like, why? Like, why would you hire that man if not for his time? No, well, and that, but it's just insane. hearing that tells me that what what you just suggested, Daniel, is a hundred percent true. Is that they each had completely different expectations of how this production was going to be handled. Um, and I'm sure that that amounted to some struggles and some changes and some awkwardness when it came to executing the story. Makes me think Hammer was like Tommy Lee Jones on the set of Batman Forever saying, I will not <laughs> sanction your buffoonery your to buffoonery. Jim Carrey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Batman Forever. I'm it's ready so to great, talk right? I think, is it is it the part of the podcast where we talk about Batman Forever? Is that where we're at already? My not God. there yet. Okay. Uh, right. My hot take is that it's amazing, but we'll get it. It is later, amazing. I, <laughs> it's, I agree. I, I agree with that hot take. I've, but, I've, um, I've been a down a long, twisty road with uh, Batman Forever. Uh, I'm currently loving it. So I don't know. Ask me again next right. year. Uh, do you think. Uh, I'm not a Castle Scholar. I wish I were. I, I've seen loads of his movies and I adore them. But at this point in his career, was he still known for kind of his gimmickry? Uh, and if so, I wonder if he had wanted to do anything with this movie and perhaps, you know, if anything did happen, uh, I, I certainly haven't read about it or heard about it, but I'm wondering if Hammer maybe played a hand in sort of shutting that down, you know, as far as, uh, you know, I just see somebody wagging their finger in his face and saying that, you know, he, he will not be flying any skeletons over audiences or attaching buzzers to seats. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what happened. Like that he wanted to do that and they they said no, you can't. We won't allow that. That's that's Oh, I I'm sorry. I No, you're I good. You I mean that's actually within the bounds of the story that's being No, told, no, but... I meant like in terms of advertising it and bringing it to theaters and stuff. That was something he was really passionate about doing. And this was he was still very much known for that. I mean in the early 60s and beyond. Um, you know, he, he was that was every release and that was what had made him such a household name. And he was a reliable moneymaker for Columbia. That was why they wanted him to work with hammer. I mean, you had hammer, which at that point was struggling, you know, in, in 1963, they had had a series of bombs. Um, and so, you know, this was an attempt to give them a working, you know, blue collar director who consistently put out stuff, you know, in genre cinema that made money. <laughs> So they're kind of like, okay, here you go. Here's one of our stock directors that's very successful. This should be a match made in heaven. And I just think that they're, the way they approach projects was just too different. And I think it was a culture thing. And I do think, you know, the, the, the difference between British humor and American humor was so fast at that time. Um, you know, the loud, jokey, kitschy, of American comedy just was not translating to what Hammer wanted to do or what Hammer thought was funny. Do you think the movie would have benefited maybe from less of either? You know, could you imagine a version of this where Hammer wasn't sort of hovering over a castle and he delivers something really fun and on par with, uh, you know, the stuff that he'd been known for up until that point? Or can you imagine a version of this movie that was directed by Terrence Fisher? You know, can can you see a sort of path for this uh. project being, <laughs> being better Sorry. than what it was by virtue of the fact that, you know, yeah. maybe one of these guys, you know, wouldn't have clashed so much with uh, the other. 
I think it is very possible William Castle would have done better on his own because especially when I look at the movies of this period, I mean, I love the William Castle movies of this period. And especially if you look at his two collaborations with Vincent Price, those are funny movies. Like those are incredible scripts yeah. with very funny, witty dialogue. Uh, but I, but I do think just a, a problem with this movie is they bill it as a horror comedy and it doesn't have horror imagery. Like if you look at those Vincent Price collaborations, house on haunted Hill and the tingler, they have fantastic now iconic horror imagery to them. In addition to being funny and fun. Uh, but this movie just doesn't have that. It's weird. Yeah, I totally agree. Like house on haunted Hill is still like, a horror. I mean, it, it fits firmly in the horror genre, you know, even though it's, it's very fun and very funny. Like has like one of the, said, has one of the great it, jump scares ever. Absolutely. It's a great movie. And, and again, that, that's my thing. I, so to answer your question, I, yeah. And I agree with Daniel. I think that had castle just been able to go make his old dark house, I think it would a hundred percent be a better movie than what we got. I don't know how well it would have worked, but I think it'd be better. I think anytime you have a, 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 per, a visionary that wants to make something, the best thing to do is let them make it get out of their way. You know, um, the more cooks in the kitchen at that point, the, the more chance you're going to have to mess it up. Now on the opposite side of that, like what would a Terrence Fisher version of this look like? Well, I, it depends. Is it starring Peter Cushing? Cause if it is, then yeah, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> you know, but if it's, if it's uh Terrence Fisher's horror comedy that was sort of written, the way this is, I, I think it still would have felt tonally confused um, in some ways, because I think that would have been the same problem is that he would have had probably sentimentalities that leaned more towards what the studio wanted. Um, but I also think he would have won in different directions. I, I, I think that at the end of the day, Castle just, I think the Tom Penderel is the closest thing to a true sort of like, this is what Castle wanted to bring to this movie. I think the problem is the movie around Tom is not the same movie that he's thinks he's in. I agree. And with that, I can't think of another thing to say about this movie. Guys, Batman Forever. <laughs> Are we done? <laughs> I think we're done. No, I think we totally gonna... just like commented the hell out of that movie. I mean, this is like a South Park commentary where they do like five minutes of the 20 minute episode because like, yeah, fuck it. We don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> uh, no, I will I, say I, for how unprepared we've been, I have been stunned at how well this commentary has gone for exactly a half an hour. I see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A third of the way through. <laughs> more commentary than Paul and I give with some movies. So actually, uh, that is true. And, and what's funny is sometimes we run out of steam really quick. On a movie that we're really prepared to talk about, you know, like <laughs> there, there are certain films where there's just not a lot to say sometimes. How much but do it, each of us love the Phantom of the Opera? And yet when it came to really diving deep into that movie, we found that maybe there wasn't a whole lot to say. Yeah, yeah. Or even like when we talked about Brides, like, I mean, we talked a lot about Brides, but like you hit a certain point where you're just like, yeah, this movie's really great. <laughs> you, you you talk about Farley from Black Saturday Night, Night Live. That, yeah, that yeah, yeah, you, hit, like, you hit a bit of wall. One part where that happened, that was great. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and often it's the commentaries where we either don't like the movie as much or we disagree. Like, I think the Curse of the Werewolf commentary was good because we we had differing opinions. So that gave us a lot to talk about conflict. Yeah, Drama. right. Exactly. Exactly. So really what needs to happen here is one of us needs to change our tune and just adore this movie. So we can sort of argue with one another about, you know, why you like it or why you don't like it. 
whatever it is. If you guys can't understand the brilliance that is 1963's The Old Dark House, I don't know what to do for you. I, I don't know that anything can be done for you. I, I've, I've, I've been trying to, you know, we have a guest on. I've tried to follow his Put cues. I've tried to be agreeable. But honestly, this movie is a masterpiece. And it sucks that you guys don't see it. I, uh, I did want to ask you guys a question, though. I was wondering if there are, there's any hammer humor or like a particular joke in a hammer movie that you think is particularly great or funny. Cause I do have one. The first one that comes to mind for me is in uh, Jinx's favorite Frankenstein created woman. When they ask him if he has a doctorate, when they ask Frankenstein, if he has a doctorate in witchcraft and he says they don't offer a doctor doctorate in witchcraft, but once they do, no doubt I will qualify. That's a great joke. <laughs> great joke. That is a good joke. I do wonder, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Cushing with the potential Terrence Fisher directed version of this movie. I wonder how Lee might have been in a role like that, playing somebody not unlike the character that he did in The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. You know, mm-hmm. imagine a Paul Allen kind of character, you know, with Lee in that role here in this kind of movie where he's charming but intelligent. This guy is just kind of, and again, nothing against the actor. Paul, like you noted, like he's probably doing his best to carry the entire movie on his shoulders, but. Uh, he's just so damn dull for stretches of it. And no, no doubt that's due to the script. No doubt that's due to some of the direction. But imagine having an actor in there who could overcome that the way that Lee uh, did from time to time with certain movies like this. I will say the first time I saw it for like maybe the first 15 minutes, I'm like actively asking myself, wait, this guy is our lead. And I like, wasn't sure, but I was yeah. like, really, we're sticking with this guy. O- okay. And then I figured out, all right, this is our lead. I guess I'll stick with him. It yeah. is a weird choice. It, he definitely doesn't have the screen presence that you're used to in a hammer film. I mean, hammer, that's one of the things that makes hammer hammer is that they often, their casting was so on point. You, you have people that just, captivate you regardless of the movie around them and you're bought into what they're doing um almost any of their stable actors would have been a better choice i feel like um (laughs) and i'm trying not to be like mean to this guy because again i think there's a lot working against him um, he's he's charming he at times with a better script he might have been much better he might be totally fine in a run-of-the-mill sort of snappy American comedy. I think he'd probably be fine. Um, in a movie like this, you need to have gravitas beneath your, your sort of bumbling every man, you know, persona. And he doesn't, he just has, there's no gravity to what he's doing. Um, and yeah, I think a Christopher Lee, a Peter Cushing and Oliver Reed, anybody, um, from hammers, regular stable would have been, would have made this movie a better film. It might have been a little too early, given uh, when this movie was made, but imagine a Ralph Bates in that role. Yeah, 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 even Ralph Bates. I mean, and you know me, I, I like uh, Horror Frankenstein, like, even though a lot of people hate that movie. I love that movie. I, He's I like great at film. being slightly funny in that yeah, movie. Yeah, that movie, and when you talk about comedy and Hammer movies, that's the one that I think of. That movie's hilarious. Yeah. There's a ton of great comedy in that movie. Um, and it doesn't get enough credit for that, I think, because it, w- it was just such a weird deviation. It came such at a weird time. You know, people talk about how Hammer's quality declined, you know, in the later years. And I actually think it's less that their quality declined and more just that the audience left them behind. 
you know, people just stopped paying attention to what Hammer was doing because they were viewed as irrelevant. But there was a lot of great stuff coming out. And yeah, no, Ralph Bates, I think in this movie, yeah, you're right. It's probably a little early, but I think he would have been great in that role. Oh, there's so much great Hammer in the 1970s. It's definitely that the audience left, but there was great stuff yeah, that we found there. Great stuff. Great stuff. Check out this dude's boxers. That's fun. <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm sorry. I was actually caught up in the movie for two that's seconds. How you, not because that's how was... you know a commentary is a good commentary. There's like a pause. And you're like, so that guy's close, huh? Close. <laughs> no, I, I, it's funny that moment with a guy hurling Penderel against the wall. That to me, like, you could tell that he was taking like a pratfall in slow motion. Like yeah. he hit the wall and he started to do the slide with the dumb look on his face. And it's like the movie didn't even have the patience to let him finish his big moment. It cuts away, and then it cuts back to him already seated. And it's like, you know, that's... Why frame a joke like that? Why undercut the joke, even if the joke wasn't going to work? You know, maybe give him another go, but it seems like the movie is constantly hamstringing itself, where it's not attempting to be horrific, but it's constantly undercutting the attempts at humor too what i don't think it's merely a matter of castle not understanding or maybe hammer wanting to uh you know dampen what castle was bringing to it like there seems to be i don't know active attempts at certain points in this movie to tone its own humor down and i'm wondering if that was maybe a note he was given i wonder how much goofier maybe castle's original attempt was and he was told to maybe hack some of that stuff out because there's definite evidence throughout the course of this movie that there are big quote unquote comic moments that are kind of diced up yeah that that is true i mean and it's hard to know how much of that is just poor choices though you know sometimes comedy's hard and sometimes it just doesn't work (laughs) sometimes you know they, they but but it's certainly possible. I mean, it's, it'd be weird if that was the case because of how hard they went advertising the comedy. You know, if this was advertised similarly to some of the other ones, like as being this really scary movie, then I could sort of buy into that more. Although maybe they leaned into the comedy once they realized they were going to have to. Um, it, it, I do like how many things he has to put into the acid before he believes it's acid. It's like, you'd think the first time his tie disintegrated, you'd be like, yeah, that's acid. And he's like, no, I got to test the other side of the tie. Okay, let me test this thing. You I'd know like to think that Vincent cinematic... Price did this. Also, you know what's a great cinematic use of acid is when it gets thrown in Tommy Lee Jones's face in Batman Forever. You know, <laughs> the problem with Batman Forever is it doesn't get talked about enough. I hear a lot about Batman Returns, you know, Batman and Robin gets a lot of play because of, you know, it's just so ridiculous and so bad that everyone talks about it. Obviously, Nolan's movies, but Batman Forever just kind of gets like left behind sometimes, I feel like. And I think it's it's really due for a for a renaissance. Well, people are not willing to deal with the fact that Chris O'Donnell is the MVP of that movie and he's awesome. Yeah. Chris O'Donnell steals that fucking movie. There's there's no question. Um, God, I'm in good company here. I love that movie. I so I, so, I have uh, questions. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, wait, you know, wait, we, wait. We said there's no question. In fact, there Before, is at least one. Um, is it Nicole Kidman? Okay, <laughs> no, she. Wait a uh, minute. Do not question Nicole Kidman in that movie. That is uh, the uh, sexiest no, version of Nicole Kidman. Agreed. There is I thought he was saying oh, she's the MVP and not Chris O'Donnell. That's, no, that no, would be I, a fair I, argument. I, I, I mean, think so too. No, no, I can't say that either because she's. 
you know, she golly, she's pretty in that movie, but very sadly, pretty. that's that's about she's all. horny for Batman hardcore. Like, <laughs> hard is the horniest character ever. I've in a never seen a character hornier for Batman, and there's a lot of horny for Batman characters <laughs> in those movies. And hey, she out hornies Catwoman in some ways, and that's impressive as hell. Catwoman um, licks his face, <laughs> yeah, and yet, and yet. <laughs> She talks about that black rubber, like, come on. Yeah, but... uh, Guys, there's uh, no topping Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. There just isn't. No, she's Uh, the best cinematic Batman villain in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. But no, Batman Forever, it's funny. I remember when I saw it as a kid, when it came out in the mid-90s, I I loved it because I was young and it was a Batman flick. And I remember when the Nolan films came out, I revisited all of them on that. uh, Anybody remember the old uh, 89 to 97 four DVD box sets they put out of all the original, like the, the Burton era movies right yeah. before the Nolan film set. I revisited all of the movies that way. And I remember being like a kind of a snobby bastard when it came to the non Burton films. Uh, I'm sticking to my guns on Batman and Robin, but Batman forever. I just could not stand. I, I, I became Tommy Lee Jones. I, I sanctioned no buffoonery watching <laughs> Batman forever. Well, that time. But I recently, about a year ago, I picked up all four of the 4Ks um, of, of that era. I rewatched uh, Tim Burton's two Batman movies. I, My God. Um, you know what's weird? I, I love the first Batman movie. I think it's solid. It's not a home run. I think in my head, I'd always imagined it was a home run. It's always very well thought of, and for good reason. It does. It gets a lot right. But it's got its weaknesses too. Like it, it's, it's, I don't know, but Batman returns, I think is just a masterpiece. And Batman it's one returns is a masterpiece. Yeah. It I is. Agree. Yes. I of, agree with that. One yeah. of the first one, I know it's technically not a home run, but it is a home run to me. If that right. makes sense. That's well, I mean, it's the first time that Keaton played Batman and he's amazing. And it Nicholson's Joker is incredible. The look of the movie is fucking fantastic. Like it has a lot of great set pieces, but it does drag at times, you know. Some of the beats don't work. Like it's it's a little it, messy. At it doesn't it doesn't have the luxury of coming in the wake of a thousand superhero movies, though. Either like oh, no, it, it, it had to it had a hard job, right? It like it, it kind of it had to do something sort of not first. I mean, there had been comic book movies before that, but I think that was the start of a new era of superhero movies uh obviously i'm not the first person to ever say that but like i and while i agree that the movie when i watch it now well and honestly to to be frank i haven't watched that film god probably in 10 15 years so i probably need to revisit it but my recollection is that it's very good but it feels like his first shot at it and batman returns feels like him sort of you know, perfecting that vision. I agree. And I only wish that he had gotten a third movie. And I'm wondering now with all the screwiness with the DCEU and the multiverse and the new flash movie and Keaton coming back as, uh, as Batman, there are rumors that he might do more movies after that. I think I read ages ago that, uh, Warner Brothers is possibly positioning Keaton's Batman to be kind of the Nick Fury of the, uh, the DCEU, I don't know if I care about that so much. It would be great to see him on screen again, but especially as that character. But damn it, what if they gave Burton the opportunity to do a third Batman film with Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer? Imagine him getting to tackle those characters, you know, in their twilight, in a way. I mean, how fucking cool would that be? Um, probably never happened, but 
you know, we can dream, can't we? I just want see Burton him. Superman with Nicolas Cage, honestly. Give me oh, that. good yeah. lord. I would pay any amount of money to see that exist. Yep, I, would, I will mortgage my house I would for that. go into debt. <laughs> yeah, I, I, nothing is more important than seeing Superman lives. Uh, it, I, God. If there was like a fringe-esque alternate universe where that movie existed, but like there were alien monsters everywhere that might eat me, I'd still go there to watch Superman lives and risk well, my yeah. life. Because you get to see Superman lives and you get to live out love and monsters, which looks like fun. Right, right. It does look like fun. You know, I, I, there there are some downsides to the love and monsters universe that, that might, you know, Everyone be you problematic. Know but um, I would probably go <laughs> just, to, just to check out Superman lives. Uh, you know, can you imagine the eventual crossover we might have had? Somebody at some point around 2000 or 2001 would have said, hey, what if uh, Keaton and Cage did uh, yeah, World's Lord, Finest? Stop. Stop you know? hurting me with these possibilities. This is just painful at this point. Okay, but you know what is I great? I'll never, ever get. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did get Batman Forever, and I did, did. revisit it on oh, 4K, and I realized that Teenage Me was right all along. Like, Batman Forever is an utter blast of a movie. It's drop-dead gorgeous. It's fun as hell, and it's kind of like... The perfect marriage, tonally, I think, of the Burton stuff and the, uh, you know, the old 60s TV show with Adam West and Burt Ward. It doesn't quite, well, I won't even say quite, like it doesn't lean as hard in the direction of the camp that that old show does. But it brings enough of it into it to change the kind of DNA of that series moving forward. I mean, it would only get one sequel, but you got to imagine that the intention was to have, you know numerous follow-ups to Batman Forever, you know, sort of uh, made in that mold, I think, where it was a little looser, a little funnier, maybe a little goofier at times, and maybe a little more kid-friendly than Burton's films, which I love those movies, I really do, but, uh, you know, being being <laughs> being like a 10-year-old kid and watching Batman Returns in the cinema, I was just kind of like, is this is this for me? Is this, I, I'm, I'm loving <laughs> well, it, but I and... don't, this doesn't feel right. In the best <laughs> and, I, and I think way. I think to that point, like that was why I love Batman Forever so much is that that was my first Batman movie. I never I had never seen a Batman film before that. Um, And I didn't grow up watching. I think I've talked to you about this before. I was not like a big movie kid. I'm a weird guy. Like I didn't come to movies, especially horror until like my late teens. So I grew up watching the things that like people show to kids like Disney movies and whatever. So Batman, uh, Batman Forever was the first one that my parents were like, oh, yeah, this looks kid friendly. So that was like my introduction to Batman. <laughs> like, so watching Batman Returns in the theaters was like, or not Returns, uh, Forever in the theaters was like, okay, this is the first Batman movie. And this is so like everything I knew and loved about Batman was based on that film um, for many years until I got, you know, old enough to sort of like seek out the originals on my own and then, uh, you know, kind of found my way. But um but yeah, so for that reason, it's always going to be kind of like a very special movie to me. I love a lot about it, but so much of the appeal for me is it's, for some reason, the one good Robin movie we have. I just think it's crazy that we've had so many Batman movies at this point, and we don't get more Robin. I'm a big Robin fan. I don't understand why uh, cinematic versions are staying away from him so much. Have you seen uh, Titans by any chance? You know, I haven't, which I keep meaning to check it out simply really because of Robin. And I did grow up on that Teen Titans cartoon and I loved it. So (laughs) 
I need to check it. I was off put when I saw the clip where Robin says fuck yeah. Batman and I was like, "Oh, I see. We're just going to be edgy." <laughs> it's okay, that moment is terrible. Not quite uh, my bag. Uh, but I, I hear season, it's good stuff. It it really is. The first season is a little dodgy. I mean, when they make choices like the the fuck Batman moment, I mean, it's kind of you know, it's a little dicey, a little questionable, but uh, the guy who plays Dick Grayson in it does a pretty great job, and by the time they hit the second season, it's a damn good show, and it's probably the best Robin we've ever gotten in live action. And That's in fact, we, uh, we, need to see it. we we get two Robins, uh, which is pretty great. So one that we've never had in live action ever before. So uh, yeah, definitely, if you're a fan, check that show out. It's pretty great. I'm a lot like Paul, though, where I've heard you talk about how you have a hard time staying with TV shows. And you're so much more of a movie person. That's very much me. I, I check out TV shows few and far between. Yeah. No. Yep. Hey. I've been burned. I've been burned one too many times on TV. <laughs> Did J.J. Abrams have something to do with it? Uh, he might have. Uh, he might have. Uh, he he uh, he He's good at first acts. Let's just... Motherfucker, JJ. Oh wow. man, we're like wow. so close to a Star Trek into Darkness tangent, but we should oh, probably God. stay away. <laughs> I, Star Trek into Darkness. Yeah, I have issues with that movie myself. Um, you know, I what? Uh, God. Okay, you know what? If we're, <laughs> we're at that point in the podcast, let's go ahead and dive into Star Trek. Into oh, Dark. welcome to our uh, old Dark Why? House podcast. Um, now we're going to talk about Star Trek for twenty minutes. Um, Why? Continue. A 9-11 movie like 12 or 13 years after the fact because everything was a 9-11 movie for like 12 or 13 years after that it had been for okay like 2006 2007 yes absolutely but like by 2013 you know I, and, i'm sorry go ahead no no I'm because saying. because it's easy jj abrams Always takes the easiest possible that route. That was, that was that was all Orky and Kurtzman, man, or Orsi and Kurtzman, however you pronounce their names. Like, uh, well, he read... directed it, and he, he executive he... produced it, so he had some say <laughs> hey, in hey, where it went. He looked pretty and moved fast. Can we at least uh... allow for the possibility that maybe at his heart, like you know, there are certain jobs that he takes where he's just kind of a, uh, you know, he's 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 just a, a workman like director doing his best to to bring you know whatever he's given to life no i don't believe that either that's bullshit um what's amazing about jj abrams is casting (laughs) he's incredible with casting but i I recognize he struggles no no in the darkness no benedict cumberbatch is con no it's not the right ethnicity but i thought his performance was good no here's here is my bomb. You want to hear my bombshell hot take on Star Trek? No, Darkness? I can't oh. wait. I can't wait Stuff for your bombshell. going this way. Outside of that one scene, when you look at the plot as a whole, Star Trek 2009 is more of a Wrath of Khan ripoff than Star Trek Into Darkness is. That's my hot take. Yeah, no, I'll give you that. Because Star Trek 2009 is completely about villain has been waiting a long time to yeah. confront the hero and kill him yeah, in no, a big battleship. Star Trek in a darkness. Most of the plot is not a ripoff of wrath of Khan. And actually there's a lot about Star Trek in a darkness. I like, I am a fan of the Kelvin timeline. I'm a big Star Trek nerd, by the way, this side of me is coming out right now. Yeah. Uh, but that one scene that rips off the scene from wrath of Khan is the worst thing in any Star Trek movie ever. It's, it's atrocious, but I, outside of that, I think there are good things in Star Trek in the darkness. 
No, I do too. I do too. It just bugs me that, uh, I don't know, man. Like I, you had Ricardo Montalban who was charming and, you know, verbose and like he, you know, he was playing an Indian Sikh. Like you replace him with dour, pissed off, pale as an Irishman's ghost, Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch. Like tell, tell me how that makes sense. Why do that? I felt like Benedict Cumberbatch recognized the problems with that movie and thought, you know what? I'm going to be as big and over the top and as intense as I possibly can and try to make this entertaining. And I felt like he did that. But of course he's no Ricardo Montalban. Honestly, Wrath of Khan is like easily in my top five blockbuster movies ever made. Like it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So he does not compare. Yeah, he does not compare to Ricardo Montalban. But with what he had to work with, I thought he did the best he could and did it pretty well. I just think but that the, movie becomes it, immediately it all... better if you call him anything but Khan. Yes, Khan literally has practically nothing to do with the plot whatsoever. There's a little bit of space seed in there, but that's it. But but that's that's the frustrating thing about J.J. Abrams <laughs> is he always does shit like that. He takes the he, he okay Khan is a popular thing, so if I make that. I don't even have to make the movie. I just call him Khan. I do a scene from it. And now like I've, I'll have what he thought was, Oh, well people will like this because of that. And of course people revolted against it because by that point, people were starting to see through Abrams sort of veil. Um, and, and, and look, you're right. Like he has a team of writers that, that do the same hack things, but like, <laughs> They're all doing it together consistently. And at a certain point you have to question, okay, what, why are we rallying behind these people? Why do we keep giving them franchises? Oh, because they know how to make something familiar that appeals to a lot of people. Um, as opposed to making something interesting that is unique. Uh, and, I and I just, you know, that it, it get I, I'm frustrated that, we keep going back to that Abrams well in franchises. You know, I mean, look do you at mean Star the, Do you mean the mystery box? <laughs> well, the mystery, the mystery like, box uh, shit is, is, is like... Is he con though? Some of the most frustrating he, he might be con. storytelling. Yeah, okay, con. he's con. Yeah, right. Well, that was the whole thing. He was like, oh, he's not con. He's not con. He's not con. John oh, he was con all along. I tricked you. It's like, you didn't trick anybody. We all <laughs> knew it was con. We've been talking online about this for fucking two years. We knew it was con. You didn't trick us, but you act like you did. Like, uh, this, this, this smug sort of... Anyway. Um, but, yeah. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> Quick question. Do we all agree that Justin Lin, Star Trek Beyond, is the best of that trilogy? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. It's absolutely. Phenomenal. It's not even a, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, oh, I love Justin Lin. I, I love, I love Beyond, and I love 09. I, I love them about equally. Uh, please don't hate me. I don't no, hate you're you. good. I love you, Jax, but. Fair enough. I do like Star Trek Beyond. I wish we would get more. I wish we could have gotten the team up movie with Chris Pine and uh, and Daddy Thor. That would have been a great movie. I wish we could get the Quentin Tarantino uh, written, you know, uh, gangsters in space. Star Trek. Do we I want that know. though? <laughs> I, you know, I want something. I don't you want what? to just let I do, the I franchise a, die on the vine. I, I, have you seen Wonder Woman um, 1984? Chris Pine is aging people. I have a proposal for the Tarantino thing that I think will make everyone happy. Uh, and uh, 
just don't call it a Star Trek movie. Just let him make a fucking like space movie <laughs> that he sure. wants he to can make, make whatever he wants, and and just let him do it. Like that. My thing is like he, you know, he comes out and he's like, oh, I want to make a Star Trek movie, and then all the discourse is, well, does Tarantino's voice sort of resonate with Star Trek, and will that work? And it's like, okay, well, just don't call it Star Trek. Just let him do an outer space movie that's like that, and give it his voice. I mean, that would be awesome. Like, Let's and still cast Chris Pine. But like at oh, the Chris same Pine time, is, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not knocking Chris Pine. I just want to insert that here. I I love Chris Pine, Chris but great. he's not like you. If you're gonna keep him in sort of, if you're gonna keep Kirk in sort of action movie mode, like I I he, they need to hurry up and knock out a couple of more movies because I don't I don't know that he's gonna age like Tom Cruise. Maybe he will, but I think at a certain point, like he he's gonna have to be a bit more Shatner than not you know what i mean like i i which would be fine i would actually prefer that i don't need every fucking star trek movie to be like a big sci-fi action flick you know i would kind of like to see a kelvin movie that adheres to uh you know maybe the approach that a lot of the older movies had ah oh, that'd be so great that's my I dream want to see like a star trek 4 type movie with the new cast <laughs> yes like star trek okay star trek 4 gets what so many blockbusters don't understand it's yeah. that we don't actually care about the action. Like I'm we gonna just want to see these characters interact. <laughs> and Star I'm Trek gonna... Four is like the only blockbuster that gets this. It's oh, Star Trek weird. Four is the shit, man. I love. I'm gonna, oh I'm gonna God, let yeah. you guys Star Trek out. I am going to mute, and I will be back in a couple oh, of minutes. Guys, knock yourselves out. We lost him on Star Trek Four. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's nothing against the movie. I just uh, I'll be back. Sure. Speak kindly. He hates whales. Basically, Jinx hates whales. Is what this boils down to. He wants all the whales to die. You know what? I, Why I remember so him posting on Twitter about how pro whale hunting he is. <laughs> yeah, they it was right it. alongside his pro Trump tweet. This, this is the. Oh, uh, now you've gone too far. Wow. It got political. This is Get where out, we sir. out, Get out. Uh, Jinx as a big game hunter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you could just He's combine so those two things, like I, I. I, I hunt Trump supporters. How would that be? Okay. Uh, I, I, hey, I, that's not hey, any way I, I, I do really, really, really want to circle back to the old dark house real quick because he's currently in the arc. And I think we got to talk about the arc. You guys can thought about I look up at the screen right and back. I see Noah's Ark. In front he's of in Noah's Ark, which this was the point of the movie where I really was like, what the fuck guys? Like, what are we doing? They okay. built an ark. <laughs> The ultimate double feature, The Old Dark House and Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Oh, my God. I this would is be what so we in. need. So, <laughs> so where did they get all these animals? How do they take care of them? Because they're that's all in really tiny. tiny cages. Like, that's not going to work. They'll, they'll, like, there's a lion. <laughs> do you think this is the same lion that William Castle used in 13 Ghosts? Uh, I hope so. Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, he would have had to have it. Shipped from America, probably, because I doubt 13 Ghosts was sh- shot in the UK. Probably not. Hey, Paul, are you are you even drinking? I don't know if I'm the only one drinking at this oh, point. Oh, I'm drinking. I'm on okay. a, I'm on my third beer. Oh, right. Because I am drunk at this point. I don't I don't know how this podcast <laughs> is going to sound, but well, let's find look, out. Well, welcome to the Hammer Pub. Uh, <laughs> part of what we do here is we get drunk, and we, we don't really worry about it once we get about halfway through. When um, I listened to your Brides of Dracula episode, and that was when I believe that was when you transitioned to Hammer Pub away from getting hammered with Hammer. Yeah, I was yeah. so glad because I was like legitimately concerned for your guys's health. <laughs> listening to some of those early episodes, I was like, "Are they okay? Is this yeah. a good idea?" Uh, you know, 
we had to uh we had to make a change there there was You're not 19 anymore <laughs> no <laughs> no we're not that that was pretty much the same we actually had a, a phone conversation a very like uh so- sobering <laughs> phone conversation one day where we're like can can we continue to do this and and jinx was like well there's so many podcasts out there about hammer like what's the point if we're not? i was like and finally i was just like look but we, we could just do our podcast and drink a little bit and, and enjoy it's hammer. Movies. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't uh, feel so like we, there are a lot of podcasts about hammer. So I think I you're don't, fine. I don't either. Yeah, it's fine. It's whatever. Yeah. But he just saw a woman's face on a seal. Uh, yeah. So like, Oh yeah. This, and, and freeze framing the seals face. It's just this, it gets so ludicrously gimmicky inside of this movie that and so far away from anything remotely related to gothic horror yeah when engaging in film criticism i hate to use the word stupid because i think it's such a cop-out <laughs> but god this movie really is stupid isn't it yeah the the, the arc really lost me like what when this happened i i was really this was a movie i was trying to like and it's yeah. never a good sign. It's never a good sign where you're 45 minutes into a movie and you're working really hard to find things that you're happy about. And when they basically show this arc in the, I don't know, the backyard, like wherever the hell they managed to build a giant functional arc um, filled with animals that they're somehow feeding and taking care of. I And, and suspension of disbelief is definitely, I mean, I can watch a movie about Dracula and not even raise my eyebrows like whatever okay sure there's vampires but when you try to tell me that this family that's living in this sort of derelict house um trying to inherit some pirate fortune has constructed noah's ark in their backyard with animals in it i just i go well i just don't believe that you know it it pulls me completely out of whatever it is they're trying to build yeah well the thing about dracula and vampires is are we understand the rules like are the rules objectively dumb sure whatever but we get it but with this yeah. it's like what there's an arc <laughs> okay and and they did nothing to earn its existence and then once it's over once we're past it it's like not important anymore and it just feels like too big of a thing to introduce like and it just shows how little the movie cares about its story like it yeah. just it, it has no investment in anything it's saying or doing. It just wants to get from one scene to the next, and it doesn't give a shit about how it does it. Let me ask, did you also feel this way when reading the book of Genesis, where you're like, what, there's an ark? This is dumb. You know, watching this movie is a lot like reading the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I had to lose a lot of listeners. He got weirdly biblical with me, and I was like, oh, damn, he's making biblical references I don't understand, and I had to make him explain them to me. Sorry. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jinx, you missed it. You missed the whole arc conversation. And not like a character arc, but a literal arc. Like a arc situation. Is he back? I thought he was back. I heard his voice. Maybe he's not back. That's weird. I heard him, too. This is weird. Yeah. I just pop in and out, guys. Okay. Oh, shit. You know, that's fine. We talked about Lost while you were gone. Specifically. And I haven't even seen the show, so I just kind of winged it. <laughs> He Daniel, did well. He, he did pretty well. I think he must have been reading like a Wikipedia page or something because he had a lot of plot points he could speak to, which was impressive. I've heard my dad and my brother argue about Lost a lot, so I kind of you know grab some plot points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a show to argue about, you sure. know. But uh, there's a hatch, and uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, there's the man in black. <laughs> and I heard about that. There's the stepfather, and that's always good. Oh my god, the stepfather. I know. I love I love hearing you talk about the stepfather, by the way. <laughs> I was gonna say that's say. the first conversation he and it I is, ever had. It oh yeah, yeah. It was and that that was the first podcast thing I ever did. Did you know that? I think you probably did. I probably told no, you. No, I didn't. I did not. Yeah, that that was because that predated Dead Ringers when I did the little like uh listener attack episode with uh Scream Addicts. That was uh before Dead Ringers started up. That is I remember at that time having that conversation with you, which I think we only spoke for about fifteen minutes, but I was like <laughs> I was knocking through so many that day. I did something like seven segments. Uh in one little short span of time. So I was just like reeling through them. And I was like, oh, I wanted to talk to that guy more. That's cool. <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. Little did you know. <laughs> the Amber Pub was on the horizon. But um, yeah, well, no, we. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I that was that was an awesome. Yeah. Step, Stepfather is obviously one of my favorite things to talk about, period. <laughs> That's right. I still wish, you know, that is one series to me that seems like it could be so easily rebooted. I know they did the remake back in 2006, 2007, something like that, which I still haven't seen. But, you know, I why not do a Halloween 2018 with Terry O'Quinn? Oh, my God. What happens to that guy when he found the family and he settled down and he got everything that he wanted and he's been in hiding for 30 years? Dude, you, you know, just you just pitched like my most anticipated film of all time if that existed. Like I would be <laughs> I would be so excited. That you know what? As if long I as was ever going to be the guy that like wrote something, like wrote for a franchise. Like I'm a huge fan of franchises and everything else, but if I was ever going to write something, that would be the movie I'd want to write. Is and, like But the, here's the thing, the it legacy could be a sequel to Yeah, no. I mean, it, it, well, I think there's a way to do that movie I mean, in a really fascinating sense that would like totally serve as a conclusion to what the first, and I guess the real question would be like, do you make it a sequel to the first film or do you involve the the sequel? You, know, you could also... almost, almost get away with involving the second film. Almost. almost. You could not account for the third film at all and no. have be Terry O'Quinn and him still being alive with legs. I mean, it just. <laughs> You know, I, and I love the Stepfather Three. I think it's a it's a it's a goofy blast of a film. Much like, I mean, the sec. Here's the thing: the first movie is a friggin' masterpiece. It's a yeah. genuinely great film. Hell, it had a yeah, screenplay by Donald friggin' Westlake. You know, yeah. Uh, the second two are, you know, they're they are what they are. They're slasher films, uh, but not great slasher films. But they're fun. They're the, a lot of fun. The, the 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 sequel, like the the initial Stepfather Two. For all of its, you know, silly things that it does, like it is still very, very good, and it, because Terry O'Quinn's there and he's he's trying, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I still enjoy it quite a, a bit, but it's retread. No, you know, it is. It's, it is. It is. It's paint my but, numbers, and that's why if you did a legacy sequel, right. I would. Tell, that's the thing. You talked about it. If I can remember what you said all those years ago, what was it? Half a decade ago, you talked about him constantly being in search of the perfect equation, like everything working out perfectly. Right. So my pitch, if I can pitch a, whoever's listening out there, I'm now pitching a stepfather, uh, stepfather 2018, even though it'd be more like 2021, 2022, something like that. But give him that, 
give him exactly what he wanted. Tell us that he found it somehow, some way, and he made that shit work. That he kept the beast under control or whatever because he was satisfied, you know, for a couple of decades. Imagine catching back up with that guy and he made family life work against all odds with his nature, right? So what would happen – because here's the thing. The only way that I can think where it simply wouldn't be, well, he had a family and then one of them, you know, missteps and he gets really pissy and things go to hell pretty quickly at that point. You know, we've seen that movie. I want to see what would happen if something from the outside threatened that notion of family to him. You know, what does that movie look like when there, you know, where it's not coming from within the family, where he has to destroy his family, you know, himself and then just move on. What if he feels he has it and then something threatens it from, you know? uh, Yeah. Like him having, him having to protect it would be interesting. Well, and the other thing you got to think about is like, so would with, well, and the other, gosh, if we're going to get into the stepfather, because Jerry Blake isn't even really who he is. We don't know his name. We don't even know who this guy really is. Jerry Blake is sort of what is, sits positioned atop the stratified layers of his past personalities. Like every new personality is informed by the one that came before it. Um, and so, you know, each part or component of his self is sort of like positioned and monitored by him to kind of create this ideal version of who he thinks he needs to be. He's not just a family man. He, he ends up being like a pillar of his community. So like this person, if, if he really managed to accomplish what he wanted to do, he wouldn't just 30 years from now, he wouldn't just be a family man. He would be known by everybody in that area and he would be important to all of them. So I like the idea of him at that point, not just protecting his family, but his community in some way. Um, and having to, to protect oh, a group Oh my of God, could you imagine that? That would be he is, awesome. If he's not merely managing a family at that point, if he is managing yeah, in his and, mind and his community, that, and occasionally yeah. he would have to pick <laughs> off the occasional stray member of that community. Uh, you know, right, to, while right still to clean it up. Protecting the family. Oh my God, dude. How great would that be? And then that wouldn't be a retread. That would be like a totally new thing because that's not what the other movies ever dealt with. It goes beyond his family and his family would love him. Like after all those years, his kids are grown up. They have kids. He's helped foster their families and protect them potentially. Well, can you imagine like, it would I, be I, like BTK, you know, where he is very much like, you know, normal everyday family man or whatever. And the family that lives with him under the same roof has no idea what a monster he is deep down. Yeah. I want this legacy sequel so bad. Mysterio <laughs> <laughs> Quinn up to these days. How old is he now anyway? I don't know, but man, I got to believe be a grandfather possibly don't you think that if somebody approached him with a really good pitch and funding for this i i gotta believe he'd do it i think he'd do it 100 percent. i kind of yeah we gotta make this happen happen. (laughs) uh he is 68 years old like he could totally still this is this is the time to do it this is like that's the right age to make this movie probably the like we we're probably in a three four year span where this is it this is the chance but here's the honestly thing. david gordon green will probably direct it <laughs> no he will not he's already got <laughs> his bits on everything else okay he's got i'm Halloween. sending he's my pitch to blumhouse i'm gonna email blumhouse we're gonna hey, make hey, this hey, work hey 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 where am i in this come on now okay our pitch <laughs> you know that? that felt begrudging our <laughs> okay jinx's pitch no he's a signed document <laughs> right now <laughs> 
I'm emailing uh, Jinx's pitch. <laughs> no, but seriously, like I, I do think, uh, I do think that would make for one potentially one hell of a movie. Uh, Paul, we should write this, um, but uh, just for the fun of it. But here's the thing, though: you get that guy in that. It, I don't know. We get into Dexter territory here, but here's the thing: if he did have a family and if he did have grandkids, do you think he would at least convince himself that he was capable of love at that point? Or would it just be a matter of contentment? Mm, well, I, I, I think it all goes into what he defines love as, which is a component of the American dream that he's attempting to construct. Right? Love is a part of that. I think truth, like the definition of like that truth, is is going to be different for someone like him than it would be for us. I think he would believe that he's. Do- I think he believes he's doing what's right. And therefore fulfilling whatever sort of machination is owed to someone you love. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, love in the sense that we would know it. Um, I think his reaction to losing something like that would be more frustration than sadness. I wonder what he looks like in the era of MAGA. Like I would, I would hope that he would just yeah. find it utterly I, distasteful. You know? See, I don't. I, think, yeah, I think he would be more on the the liberal side of things because that's the persona he understands would need to be put out into the world to be <clears throat> to foster what is essentially a community. You know, those those concepts, the mega concepts, fly in the face of what a community really should be, and I think he would understand that. And I think that would be kind of an interesting social commentary to put into a newer movie is that even someone like this man who's essentially a murderer like recognizes mega as a toxic cancer could you imagine (laughs) him picking off proud boys uh that he scoped out at a rally maybe now he's the hero of this movie no that's the thing that's Uh, i would position it where it would start so i think it would start with him he would be an an anti-hero yeah i think i think the way you do it is uh, he would begin the audience would see him as sort of an anti-hero. Like they know what he's doing is wrong, but they can't help but want to see the people he's getting rid of be taken out. He's had, but as the movie progresses, you would start to go, Oh, okay. This is really dangerous. And, you know, and eventually who he'd have to attack would not be a bad person. (laughs) And also like, Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, I'm listening to this fascinating discussion from you guys, and I'm also just watching the dumbest shit I just in this movie. To glance over at the same time. I was like, okay, this isn't Tex Avery. This is straight up like Looney Tunes. This is except Looney Tunes is is amazing, and this is not very true. Very true. Paul, we well, need to talk more about stepfather later. Uh, <laughs> we can table we can table the stepfather conversation. I apologize. <laughs> no, I, uh, no, no, no. It's it's great. When, I, whenever I, I get really started on movie. this particular topic, it's really hard for me to stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, can I tell you guys a quick old dark house related story? Please do. Yes. Okay, so I mentioned that I watched this for the first time back in the summer for research purposes. Funny story. I have a friend who, uh, and I can't use any names here, but I have a friend who was sort of familiar with or affiliated with a uh, a group of sorts. Gosh, I'm going to have to dance around stuff here. Damn it. Uh, and you'll understand why here in a bit. But anyway, this group was going to start working on some fun, you know, horror community related projects back during the beginning of summer. Uh, you know, we were all in uh, kind of 
early in uh, COVID land at that point. And, you know, I think we saw a lot of Zoom related fun things people were doing, you know, throughout the course of 2020, like uh, script readings and whatnot. And uh, this particular group that my friend knew of and knew people in, well, they were thinking about doing an audio drama version or like a live radio play version of uh, The Old Dark House, an adaptation of the original Universal movie, which either it or the original novel, or maybe perhaps both, uh, they're in the public domain. So when I heard this, she mentioned she was like, yeah, I think they're just going to take the original script and just read it, you know, but... I don't know if that'll work because there are long stretches of the movie that are kind of dependent on action, you know, occurring. So how do you make that work? And I was like, well, I was like, if they'd be willing to let me do it, because I think it would be fun. I could adapt the original movie into kind of radio play. I could uh, create a narrator to sort of describe what's happening. You know, I can kind of make adjustments here and there. And, you know, if they're cool with it, you know, I'll sort of, write my own spin on a few things throughout. And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. So she got in touch with them and they got back to her and said that was fine. And they also suggested my uh, bringing elements of the original novel into it. So over the course of a couple of weeks, I, I can't tell you how many times I watched the original Old Dark House. I watched this movie that we're currently kind of sort of commenting on, you know, once as or I read the novel and I wound up writing this thing that I was kind of proud of. And they were talking at one point about actually reaching out to some really cool actors to participate in this. And it was sort of rolling along and going well. And one of the things that, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but I basically wrote my version of it and sent it along. And as I understand it, everybody loved it. But the guy who was ultimately tasked with directing the thing, uh, who's the, I guess the head of this company, um, thought it strayed too far from the original movie. So he wanted it cut back. So I had to trim everything back. Uh, they left the grim downbeat ending, which everybody kind of enjoyed. And there is a, uh, a kind of game played at the table in the novel that is not in the original James Whale film that I reinstated that they were cool with leaving in. But otherwise, that was that was pretty much that. They were going to put this thing on and then... I, and I don't know if you guys would have seen this or not. Uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle online when it was discovered that this same group had basically they had existed a couple of years prior to this and they had gone under because their owner at the time or somebody who was a major part of it um, did some dodgy things and was also accused or maybe possibly convicted of uh, uh, molestation. So, yeah, and then so this company went away and they came back, um, as I understand it, under new management. Uh, so it was no longer affiliated with that person, but it was ultimately revealed through a few uh, folks who did some digging online that, in fact, that awful person was still affiliated with the group just quietly and kind of behind the scenes. So when I found that out, I... Of course, told my friend who didn't know anything about it. And at that point, I sort of I, I told him I was like, look, I don't know if he's affiliated or not. I just don't. You know, obviously, you have the script right now. If you perform it, just leave my name out of it. I don't want anything to do with it whatsoever. And that was pretty much where the entire thing ended. And it never got made. Uh, but it was just kind of a weird thing to contend with this summer on top of everything else that was happening. I don't know if you guys remember what was going on horror community wise in the early parts of the summer, but it was, it was a busy 
first half of the year, I think, for crazy things happening. But um, I don't know. That was kind of my weird experience with the old Dark House. And it bums me out because at one point they were talking about reaching out to a couple of really fun actors to do the voices for the characters. And the person that they were looking at to be the narrator, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I... I want to write like a really fun opening and closing narration for this person to speak. And I want to do it in the style of like, you know, Vincent Price in the opening of House on Haunted Hills, something like that. And I wrote something that I was actually really proud of that I think would have been fun, especially voiced by the uh, the right actor. And and nobody will ever hear it now <laughs> because uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen. But uh but yeah, it's just it's just a bit of a bummer. Uh, and I have no idea if you guys know what I'm talking about. I can tell you once we're off the air here. But uh, but yeah, no, that's my weird old dark house story. That was a ramble. I apologize. No, guys... that's a wild story, man. It, it that story was a journey. Um, <laughs> I've I've heard snippets of it before, um, but it my heart goes out to you because it sounds like an awesome script. It was fun. It was like I said, I pulled a lot from I pulled a lot from the original novel, which I have great respect for. I, I think it's a really, really great tale and one that's kind of, uh, you know, that original story is very much the prototype for many, many types of tales that came after. Uh, wasn't only commenting on certain types of things up there and kind of, you know, taking the piss out of them in a way. But also, I think it inspired many, many other movies of its type or stories of its type. But anyway, um and then the original movie, obviously adapted. But the one thing that I was proud of was just the the that damn narration. Like I almost want to. And here's the thing: it's so closely tied to what the story is. I can't simply lift it out and use it in something else. So I was just kind of like, eh, you know, whatever, it's fine. You know, I will say uh, regarding this movie we're watching right now, the twist of the the pretty perfect 1950s girl turning out to be the villain. Not a bad twist, and, it, and it's the one thing I remember from this movie of being um, maybe pretty good. I do love – it's funny that we were talking about Batman Forever earlier because her ultimate plot seems very like 60s Batman TV show to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you, you could imagine Batman and Robin running around with bombs above their heads, tossing them out every open window. Honestly, I now that you say it, I feel like I see more 1960s Batman in this than I see Adam's <laughs> Family or Monsters. Well, it it just goes back to it to me. It just it feels like television in a lot of ways. Like it, there's a lot of little like story conceits and silly little things that feel like they came right off of television at the time. Um, so I mean, yeah. Noah's Ark would definitely fit more into uh, 60s Batman than Adam's Family. I can I can see it showing up <laughs> a little bit more there. Yeah. But sadly, this doesn't have Vincent Price's egghead, so that's just a damn shame. I mean, that would make the movie better. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> I do like the bomb landing right at her feet. That's kind of funny. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but my God. This whole movie is ridiculous. It, it is that for sure. And it all comes down to the Ark. In the end, the Ark was the most important location. <laughs> I really yeah. appreciate biblical epics like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, Aronofsky said this was his primary influence on Noah. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. This is the number one. 
you know, this is what led to that, not the Bible. Your listeners are so lucky to get trivia like this. Yeah. Yeah. Write it down. <laughs> put it, put it, put it in the book, in the Aronofsky book you're writing, listener. <laughs> Quote me. I gotta say, these episodes are real journeys just as a listener, but yeah. they sure are wild as a participant. <laughs> See, yeah, now you're getting a little peek behind the curtain. <laughs> please, please give us any sort of feedback. Do you love the show? Do you hate it? Do you, are you sometimes confused by it? We get, here's the thing, like, we can see... I think I'm sometimes people... confused by it. I think... <laughs> We can I, see how many people I can't remember where the Star Trek conversation came from. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I remember it, there was it, an episode not that long ago. It was three or four episodes ago where I told Paul, I boasted. I was like, no, I'm going to make this all make sense. I'm going to tie it back to what we were talking about. And then 10 minutes later, I'm like, shit, I can't remember where this came from. I don't know how we do got it. here. Couldn't even do it. <laughs> We didn't get super personal this episode, at least. I mean, at least we kept it to film talk. I mean, that's something, yeah. I think. Well, I haven't this had is much the part of the movie I hate with the bump on his head. It's like, I don't know. It just, it's, it's so ugly ridiculous. to me and it makes no sense and I hate it. Yeah. Well, it, nothing else in the movie. Again, all these like non sequitur jokes that don't exist. Like you mentioned earlier that like vampire movies have rules. And so we accept those rules because we know what they are and we know what the confines of sort of the narrative are going to be. This movie has no rules. Like every joke exists in its own weird, ludicrous reality that keeps fluctuating and we can't track it as viewers. So how the hell are we supposed to buy into any of it? Yep. Very well said. I actually thought at this part that he was going to end up with her. And I was like, oh, this is the wrong ending. This feels very wrong. But then it, it doesn't go that way. So kudos to the movie for that, I guess. Yeah. Good job. Good job, old Dark House. <laughs> <laughs> do either of you guys have a particular favorite William Castle movie or do you just love his stuff as a whole? Hmm. Um, I mean, my... <sighs> When it comes to William Castle, I, I think the problem is some of my favorites are going to be like the obvious choices. I mean, I, Vincent Price is like maybe my favorite actor. So like um, House on Haunted Hill is going to be super high up on my list. Um, I also really like Straight Jacket. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, Tingler's fun. Um what what was his uh oh what was what was his diabolique movie that he made that's a lot like diabolique uh i can't think of the name of it it's like one of his first films um oh shit um is it macabre yeah, not maniacal um it might macabre. be macabre yeah i like macabre as well but, but um i think i think Probably going with the easy answer of House on Haunted Hill would probably be my favorite, but those other two would be pretty high up there for me. Um, yeah, it's it's House on Haunted Hill for me too. Uh, Mr. Sargdonicus would be a very, very close second, I think, and is arguably maybe a better movie, even, but House on Haunted Hill is just so damned fun. And this is the first castle I ever saw, too. Uh, actually, I kid you not, right before the um the remake came out in 99. Uh, I was wanting to prep uh, before seeing it. And uh, I say prep like I was going to do a fucking podcast back in 99, but 
Um, no, it had just gotten re-released on, I don't even know if it was on DVD, but uh, they had put it out on VHS maybe right before the uh, the 99 remake, and that was the first time that I ever saw it, and I just absolutely adored it. And I still do. I think for me, it's a very close toss-up between the Tingler and Mr. Sardonicus. Sardonicus maybe being the one I respect the most, but the Tingler being the most fun to watch. But yeah, House on Haunted Hill, like that's been in my life ever since I was a very small kid. I've seen it a million times. It's it's so great. I uh, I have to admit, I've never seen Mr. Sardonicus, and you guys are making me really, really want to check this out. So that will it be... really is his Hammer movie. I will I will watch that very soon, and I do love the Tingler. Um, I should say. Oh, and another one I really like is um, I couldn't think of the title before, but the Night Walker. Have you guys ever seen I've that? Never seen that. That one didn't really work for me, but I, I liked I, it. I'll give it another chance one of these days. But um, yeah, yeah, I thought I, it was just okay. But I'm a big I, Barbara Stanwyck fan. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was like a a good sort of yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I, I it was recommended by um, I think Brian Sauer brought it up on like just the discs or maybe um, he did. Yeah, yeah, somewhere, and I watched it because of that. But uh, I enjoyed it. But anyway, I mean, you know, all these things are going to hit you differently at different times, but. I will definitely check out uh, Mr. Sardonicus as soon as I can. That's so great. But yeah. And now... Uh... All right. Is this is this the awkward moment where we don't know if we're going to have a post-podcast chat or if we're just going to sort of... My bedtime is an hour ago, so I don't know that I will. Oh my I, I feel like you're prematurely jumping the gun here on Old Dark House. We still have content to discuss. I mean, the movie's still going. <laughs> Wait, but it's over for me. What do you do? You have an extended cut? I might. There's like a weird funeral scene. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I, over I, like I am. I'm not watching the Blu-ray, me. so I have more content. Paul, <laughs> Paul has sort of pulled on he and I both. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I am watching it online. I'm streaming this movie. Um, you are currently seeing scenes from Diary of a Madman, which is a Vincent Price film. <laughs> oh, Paul. am I? <laughs> oh did it just go to the next movie yep yeah oh sweet so, and here's the thing i'm i'm watching it on YouTube. are you also streaming well, no, here's the thing i knew. i just got that damned mill creek blu-ray set That's but i'm currently hilarious. recording in a place where i'm not i'm not used to recording and so like I, that's what I have access to right now. I'm currently watching it streaming off of YouTube, much like you, Paul. So, uh, yeah, when you, <laughs> I was going to cut it. I wasn't going to mention that. that. I feel weird be... streaming the movie on YouTube, even though I personally own a copy of it. Like there's still a weird guilt there. I don't know why, but, um, I look, I, I buy so I, my, my argument is always that like, I am somebody that definitely pays for my media. <laughs> I buy a lot of things and I very rarely have to stream something on YouTube, but um, I would have rented it. I just couldn't find it anywhere. But no, and it, that is a weird day. thing. That's for so being, funny. Uh, I think Dan- Daniel, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. It is very rare that this is a hammer film and this is a William Castle movie. And yet it's not easily available. It's not readily available on any streaming service that I could find. It's not on any streaming service. It's very weird. 
Yeah, I would have rented it. I would have paid for it if I could have. Um, I got to buy that box set, but the box set's like a hundred bucks, and uh, I got to budget that shit. Is it really? It was recently on deep discount for fifty five. So see, check like I, I wish I wish I had seen that because I would have paid fifty five. I checked Amazon today, and it was one oh nine. So I'm oh, just gee, gonna sit on it. Shit. I know it'll go down. I'll, I'll buy it eventually. The only downside is I've already bought a lot of like Mill Creek released a lot of those Hammer movies like as one offs, like in two packs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought like a bunch of those, so I'm like, ah, <laughs> I paid for all those. So, the movie's not on there, like they're worth it. I, I know you probably I, know that, but I'm gonna get it. I just gotta wait till it's a little bit more affordable. Can we talk about friggin' Mill Creek? Like, do you guys not remember? Not even that long ago, where those guys were essentially, you know, they 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 were the DVD and Blu-ray equivalent of Good Times Video from back. Oh in the yeah, days. yeah. They were, it's like they were not good. They no, their <laughs> early stuff. Like I don't even know how you can do extra long play on a Blu-ray, but I'm pretty sure they could have figured it out just to give us the worst possible version. But uh, but no. Now recently, they've been putting out some pretty great stuff, and that hammer set definitely seems to be uh, you know, a step up for them. Well, like I said, the Inner Sanctum set I have is from them, and they've also been doing those like um, retro releases where they do like a VHS box cover, where it looks like a VHS kind of like. Oh yeah, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Mill Creek, and a lot of those releases are pretty decent as well. So I've been, and they're cheap. You know, they're under ten dollars, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's the thing about Mill Creek is is like they're never going to give you a Vinegar Syndrome or Scream Factory presentation, but they have such a lower price. And and the thing with this hammer set, like the transfers are fantastic and the, the bonus features are not plentiful. Like it's not a Vinegar Syndrome set, but they're pretty good and, and they're on there. There's just not a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you guys did um, a cobwebs running through that whole set, right? Like a like a set review and ranking. I movies? did, yeah. It was me and uh, Aaron Penn, and we we did an open discussion about the set, and then uh, I gave a ranking of all the movies. Aaron didn't care to rank them, which was totally fine, so he just talked with me <laughs> along with it. But yeah, that was a fun episode. I enjoyed That's it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. So it's on my it's on my queue. Well, thanks, man. All right. Well, guys, I think we've just about reached the end of this episode. Uh, Daniel, it's past your bedtime. Honestly, it's past my bedtime. Like this was <laughs> this was an unexpected bit of recording, but I'm very glad that it happened because I had a blast chatting with you guys tonight. Um, so before we go, Daniel, tell us a bit about Cobwebs. For any listeners out there who may not have given it a shot yet, let them know where they can find you, uh, what the deal with your show is and what you have coming up. Sure. Uh, It's called Cobwebs, a gothic cinema podcast. The main idea of the show is to cover older classic horror films. I definitely focus on Hammer the most, but I've also opened it up to newer films that take inspiration from the older gothic films. And uh, yeah, like Paul mentioned, we recently covered this Hammer box set, but uh, we are just about to kick off a series on... Uh, what I'm saying, what I'm calling the dark universe, which is 2000s classic monster reboots. And uh, every episode on a movie is going to be a double feature with an older movie that pairs well with it. So we're about to release our first episode of this. It is Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter paired with uh, Stephen Summers Van Helsing. Oh my so, God. yeah, very excited about that. <laughs> Paul Farrell is going to be on a future episode. I'm very excited to have him on because I've, I've listened to him and 
respected him on podcast for a long time. So I'm very excited to have him on. And you can also check out Jinx on Cobwebs where we talked about Amicus. So yeah, we're on all podcast apps. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cobwebs Pod. Can I publicly plead with you to be on a Dracula Untold episode? That's the episode with Paul. Actually. Funny, no! funny you should mention that. <laughs> I love that movie so much. I thought he was the big Dracula fan. I thought you even said on this episode you're not a big Dracula fan. No, I no. Here's the thing: I adore <laughs> Dracula. Uh, it's just the Hammer series that I'm kind of you know so so on uh, with some of those middle entries. No, I I absolutely adore the character. As a matter of fact, I have a funny story about. Uh, in a weird way, Dracula was one of the early gateways for me. Uh, not only the Bram Stoker movie, but... Uh, okay, this is like an hour-long conversation in the making. I'm not going to get into it. But no, I absolutely adore Dracula. I think Dracula Untold is fucking great. Uh, it, I, I think it's so unfairly kind of maligned and underloved uh, and just not talked about in the way that it should be. And I think it would have been a far better kickoff to Universal's Dark Universe than The Mummy wound up being, even though I don't hate The Mummy, but Dracula Untold to me seemed like a far better blueprint for what they should be doing with those uh, characters. And sadly, it just never came to be. Um, but no, no, it's 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 cool. That is so weird. That's hilarious that's so that that's the movie you brought up. Like I, I was not expecting that. <laughs> well, I I also love Dracula, so <laughs> there we go. Can you at least tell me Dracula you... boys here? <laughs> we all love the Dracula. Good deal, Paul. What do you have going on? Uh, any episodes of uh, Dead Ringers coming up anytime soon? Uh, yeah, we did a big Christmas horror one, uh, that came out maybe like a, like right around Christmas. That was really fun. And we ran through like a ton of just different Christmas horror movies. Um, and then we're about to record a best of the year episode that we do annually. Ours is a little different than most. Um, so it's not going to be just us giving our top tens. What we do is we run through, uh, each of us nominate 15 movies so we end up with like a ton of movies to discuss and we run through like 30 or 40 films and we narrow it down to a collective top 10 that we all have to sort of vote on on air as we talk about them. It's a big episode. It's always very long, um, but it's really fun. And we sort of come up with a dead ringers top 10 horror of the year. And it's everybody on the podcast is there. So it's one of the rare times we have like all six or seven of us. So it's kind of a chaotic episode. We all drink, so it's kind of crazy. Uh, so that should be recording in the next week or two. Um, so look look, uh, look out for that. And then after that, we're going to get back to uh, regular episodes. So we'll start. Um, we've been doing like off topics the last couple months um, as we've been sort of coming out of 2020. But after that, we're going to get back to uh, comparing movies as we used to do. Um and then uh, I did have a new uh, Hammer column come out today, actually. I don't know when people will be listening to this. but Frankenstein uh, Created Woman. Uh, we are recording late Tuesday. This should be going up on Friday. Okay. So last Tuesday, uh, I had a new <laughs> Hammer column come out on Frankenstein Created Woman uh, on Bloody Disgusting. Uh, so you can check that out. Uh, and I should have another one coming out. Uh, on um, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires is my next one. So that'll be coming out uh, next month. And then uh, Written in Blood is making its return this month as well. I took a brief sabbatical, 
And that'll be back towards the end of January with uh, Night of the Living Dead. Nice. I can't wait for that. All right. I guess that's pretty much it. Guys, thank you so much for recording this uh, with kind of no notice whatsoever. Daniel, thank you very much for being our very first guest in the Hammer Pub. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you very much for having me. We will uh, we will let you get off to sleep now, and uh, I'm 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 not far behind. I don't think. <laughs> Paul, how about you? You up for the rest of the night, or you uh, you calling it a night early too? Uh, I, I say early. Get up. It's after midnight. Yeah, I gotta get up early tomorrow, but I'll probably throw on a movie. You know me. <laughs> Rock on. All right, this is the part where I do the really boring bit, where I say, folks, thank you so much for listening. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments. You're not going to use the comments section. I tell you all the time, please use the comments section. Nobody ever does. I'm not even, you know. They might do it this time. They might. No, they're not going to, Paul. They're not going to do it. It's fine. I don't care. I don't care anymore. But you can yell or scream at us on Twitter. That is at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Uh, guys, have we said where we, they, people can find you at on Twitter? Paul, give me your Twitter handle. Uh, I am at PaulIsGreat2000 on Twitter.com. <laughs> and Daniel, where can folks find you? I am at Epler Daniel. That's E P L E R. Daniel, like the Bible, just like Noah's Ark. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Call back. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we, we, we hope we were even somewhat coherent. Uh, but if not, be gentle with us. Uh, other than that, we will see you next episode for, uh, well, maybe it'll be a top ten episode that we planned for the past month. Maybe it won't. We'll see. Uh, it'll, it'll be a surprise for all of us. But uh, in any case, thank you so much, and have a great weekend. <laughs>